super pretty night rain. Sounds so nice. It's kind of a strange time to be recording a podcast. Up for in the morning? On a Sunday morning. Oh yeah. I feel like there's something special about the Saturday, Sunday night. You see what I mean? Yeah, for most people, I guess, because... like peak weekend time. Yeah, it's like... No, wait, no, I don't agree. I would have said Friday to Saturday. Because I feel like from Friday to Saturday, you know you've got the whole weekend. It's like a special kind of time. You wake up on Saturday and you're in the middle of it. It's like, yes, I've got all this today and I've got tomorrow. As soon as any hint of Sunday creeps in, it's like, ugh. You know that Monday's rearing its ugly head just yeah. around the corner. And I hate that Sunday feeling. I get that Sunday feeling now, even though I'm not a normal Monday to Friday. I feel like school is what made it worse yeah. when you're a kid. And it's like, when Friday comes around, it's like, oh, I've just got to get through today. And then I finally get my little stint of freedom. But then, like, Sunday midday, yeah. you're starting to feel the angst of like oh it's coming back around again it's like a boomerang of misery that's why i feel like week. you only really get one day you only really get saturday saturday is free and clear and yeah. sunday is like shit you gotta get all your stuff in morning order. for the week to come you can't do anything amazing because you know you have to go to sleep early god i hate that did you go to sleep early for school the next day? No, but you know you You're supposed should. to. Yeah. You but then know you end you up should. staying awake till like 1am. And then, oh, do you regret it the next day? <sighs> and you get past a certain time and you're like, there's no point now even trying to go to sleep because you're just going to feel worse. <sighs> you know if you try to sleep on just like two hours, you won't wake up. You'll get that really like deep in the pit of your tummy sickness feeling, you know, like when you wake up and you haven't had enough sleep. It's also horrible when you play that game of like, you look over at the clock and you do the maths and you're like, if I go to sleep now, I'll get seven hours sleep. Yeah. And then you look at it again and you're like, oh, but if I go to sleep now, I'll get six hours sleep. Who and it's doesn't like do that? Slowly eroding away yeah. the remaining time. God, I'm so glad I'm not living that life. I feel like insomnia must be like, it seems like such a trivial thing in a way, but it must be like completely unbearable torment. To not be able to go to sleep when you want to or when you need to. I've had insomnia pretty bad a few times, but I can imagine that, you know, there are people out there who get it and it's like way worse. Even though I myself thought it was pretty bad, it probably wasn't pretty bad compared to those people who get it worse and sort of more frequently. But when you haven't slept for like two days or nearly two days... You really just feel like you're going mad. It's not good. Yeah. Get some sleep, kids. Strange how we don't really think about sleep very much, but then when you are insanely tired, like you've been up for like 36, 48 hours, it's such a debilitating state of mind where you can't think straight, you can't really function. You really are like a zombie just kind of wading through this murk of like, tiredness and frustration and just Ma- waiting for the next period of dozing imagine if you were occur. like a- awake like on a job like i don't know if in the real world they can do like 48 hour shifts i'm going to anatomy they can 
But in the real world, I'm it's great. It's not to be not a documentary. <laughs> you're telling me after <laughs> all these years, you're telling me it's not a documentary film about the the lives and travails of I'm medical stuff. That that's not a real thing in real life because I feel like as soon as, I mean, as soon as I've been up like twenty hours, I'm like, oh my god, I can't do anything. So I can't imagine. But I feel like the world of doctors, the doctorly world, if you will, and I'm sure that you will, because you're similarly mad, but it's a special realm where the normal rules don't apply. You're like expected to do superhuman acts of sacrifice and dedication. And if they say to you, there's going to be an influx of new patients, we need you to pull an extra shift or they're going to be understaffed and we're gonna have to turn people away i feel like you just you can't you can't be like nah i want to go and watch some netflix sorry guys tell the surgery patients that i needed to marathon stranger what, things what are you gonna i was trying to think <laughs> of a, a, like a I new popular that why because uh, i'm definitely have fallen into that trap of everyone's talking about it so i'm just gonna hate it i feel exactly <laughs> the same i don't feel that i'm gonna hate it Not i just feel like it. i've got no interest in, <clears throat> in seeing it especially because i feel like i've heard so many discussions on other podcasts or like on articles online where they try to talk about it in a spoiler free way but every time there's like a little tiny like glimpse of what the actual yeah. plot is and after a while you start to piece together and feel like you know what even though i haven't actually read any spoilers i think i know what this show is now and halloween was the worst because i feel like in every group of people there was someone who dressed up as someone from stranger things and i, I was just like i don't get i don't get it and part of me was like is that because you want to get it and you don't get it <clears throat> so you're mad or I don't know, but I'm definitely doing that, like, childish thing of purposely kind of disliking it now that it's everyone's answer to the best show. Are you watching the rain on the window? Yeah, it's pretty. There's, like, misting rain hitting against the window. So pretty. Making pretty pitter-patter sounds. I can actually see the new drops hit the window. It's It's pretty cool. You know what else they're hitting? On the window? What? Our neglected bird feeder. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that? bird feeder. We put a bird feeder on the outside of our window. (laughs) One of those ones that has like suction cups so you can just like stick it on there. And the seed has been the same level this whole time except for once. Do you remember? Yeah. There had been a clear change. I am now thinking that it wasn't a bird, that it was the wind or something. It was just the wind whipping out seeds one by one. Wouldn't that bird have come back? Yeah. Unless they were just passing through. Or maybe they didn't enjoy our seed because it was like cheapo. Like Wasn't it from the pound shop? I think so, yeah. Yeah. We needed to have some kind of gourmet bird seed. Yeah. They can't, the thing is, though, I guess obviously at some point they start to think that's a bird feeder because of the shape of it, maybe. Like, how else do they know what it is? Because the seeds and stuff don't smell of anything. But see, then... We countered that with a, what I thought was quite a smart idea. We scattered bird seed all over the window ledge so that yeah. from the sky they could see, they'd hopefully be able to see these bird seeds and then they would come closer and see that there was a big container of them that they could get at, but it didn't seem to work either. And now I get the feeling that the bird seeds are like 
because it's so cold and wet, they must just be like frozen and soggy and yeah. I, I guess birds don't care about that, but maybe they do. How do they know that birds eat his food? If they're that's not, because that's not what they hunt outside. Yeah. They don't hunt bird seed. Sounds so silly. <laughs> I don't think they. What do they hunt stuff? I thought they just like they eat worms. Yeah, that's true. Stuff. But is that hunting? They just pick worms oh, of out it of the, is. In the ground. It's a bird form. Some of low effort, basic bitch hunting. I don't know what else they eat. Nuts and seeds and acorns yeah. and stuff like that. They don't eat acorns. Acorns would be chestnuts. Imagine if there was a bird that ate chestnuts, just like, I guess maybe like a woodpecker could break into the the hard chestnut shell. That'd be a fearsome bird. If it could go through the outside of a chestnut, it could go through your goddamn skull. What? Yeah. How about that? I don't think that's true. Don't you fuck with birds. (laughs) They're coming for you. Hitchcock had a prescient vision. That film is terrifying. Yeah. Have you seen it? No, because I'm not an oldie. How old I don't you? go to matinee showings of old <laughs> black and white Hitchcock films. I. It's not black and white. I just assume any film made before <laughs> 1980 is not only black and white, but it has no sound. I don't know when the talkies were invented, but I assume 1980. That's what it's like being a young whippersnapper. You think that everything before your birth was like How dare you? prehistory. I first saw that film when I was like 10, maybe even younger, when I used to like stay at my grandma's house and then fall, like everyone, she would fall asleep and leave the TV on and so I get to just watch what I wanted. And it came on one night at like 2am in the morning when I couldn't sleep and I watched it on my own in the dark. Little me, like, terrified. It was really, really terrifying. That's not a good film to watch, I imagine, when it's pitch black. That'll fucking get you. You can hear, like, creepy bird sounds outside. Yeah. Not outside. They came in the house. There's this horrible scene, like, towards the end where they get in the house. So they come down the chimney. They they knock on the door. No. They figured out how to operate the doorbell. You don't really like scary movies, do you? I don't. Like, I really despise jump scares. I think oh, it's such a cheap, lame... That's my favourite kind of scare. Like, it just... It does nothing... It gets me, obviously, because, of course, it gets you something jumps out at yeah. the screen. But I'm always... I never feel... It's not... I'm not scared. It's just, like, a, sh- a visual shock. You're mad that they got you. <sighs> Maybe a little bit because it's so cheap. I like films where there's... Like, for me, if you were, like, we're going to watch a horror film, it'd have to be the type of film where it's, like... There are no jump scares. It's just the atmosphere that it creates is so creepy and unsettling that it kind of Mm. makes you uncomfortable and on the edge of your seat for the whole experience. That is the type of horror film you could get me to watch. I love love jump scares. Like, that's my favourite kind of horror movie. Um, I don't like the type of horror movies where it's like, like saw doesn't scare me torture porn it's stupid as they call it that gory stuff is just gross it's not scary um but have you ever seen the strangers no so good that's the perfect like oh my god oh my god oh my god jump like type of film that you hate obviously but it was really good i'm imagining just based on the title of this film it's about a guy who goes to like a family get together like some kind of party some kind of function and he doesn't know anyone there so they're all strangers and he has to like overcome his like social anxiety and his 
awkwardness and his uncomfortableness in okay. social situations and go and talk to quote unquote the strangers. And that's that for me is a horror film. <laughs> How about that? I did not know you were gonna take it in that direction. That's like a millennial first, horror film. I thought you were predicting the film for real because it starts with they go to like a friend's wedding or whatever. And so I thought oh, he knows there's nothing scarier than having to go and talk to quote unquote the strangers yeah. at a and this film, I know, like, we've we talked about this just yesterday, but I feel like it was partly kind of based on a true story, true events, maybe. But I feel like every other film says that now. I feel like and they're allowed to put that no matter what, though. They can put that marketing. regardless, right? Like, no one's saying to them, that's a lie. Yeah, there's not, like, a licensing body where yeah. you have to pass a certain test to have the addendum, this was based on a true story. Do you know what the horror movies are most scary when it can actually really happen? Like, if, if it is people that are doing it, you know, instead of, like... Um, Monsters. What's mutants. that one that's really big? It's got, like, lots of sequels. The... The... I can't remember. But that... That's still scary because there's a lot of jump scares and you don't really see what it is. But when it is some kind of supernatural like entity or whatever, it's never as scary because... It's not realistic. It's not real. Or so we think. <laughs> I just imagined. Like, <laughs> like all the stuff coming flying out the cupboards. All the scary monsters of horror <laughs> films over the years. Yeah, and like supernatural entities and things like that. Um, that can be scary when done right, but for the most part, that's nowhere near as scary as it just being regular people or like your neighbours. Just a guy breaks into the house yeah. with a knife and a... <laughs> I was going to say something in the completely opposite direction. For some reason, Cabbage Patch Doll came into my head. I guess if a guy broke in with a kid's toy and a knife, that's pretty terrifying. He's like, hi, I've lost my toddler. And also, do you do knife sharpening services? Could just be innocuous, I guess. Although, why he kicked down your door to try and figure out these two conundrums? This is horrible to think about, actually. Someone breaking in. This is horrible. That, uh, that's why I think what you're saying is true. Yeah. That classic, like, home invasion scenario with just, like, a stranger who yep. for some reason wants to hurt you and your loved ones. There is something more kind of viscerally disturbing about that than like space aliens come down and want to inhabit your cranium. <laughs> you wanted an offering at the same time. I know. And if someone gets in your house, especially when you live in an apartment like us, there's nowhere to go. Like, in these movies, often it's like a big house and so there are lots of places to hide or there are lots of entrances or lots of windows or whatever. But we will have nowhere to go. See, I see it the opposite way. If you get attacked in an apartment, you can just scream and there's like six mm. or seven apartment buildings right by us. Like connected by walls and so people are going to hear whereas if you're in like i'm picturing like a manor like yeah in the middle of like yeah a forest that's when you're really <laughs> screwed if someone decides they want to come and kill you but i feel like you're then putting faith into people a coming to help you or b calling for help. yeah not coming i think coming to help you is is probably too optimistic yeah. about we human might, courage we in might this suffer the day by, and age. <laughs> we might suffer the bystander effect 
the whole building here's just they're just standing screaming. outside the door they're like should we go in no we probably don't want to go in but she's screaming well you know it could be some kind of weird perverted <laughs> i meant more sex like game. one apartment's gonna think what's that should we do something no someone else is probably called the police but then all five of the apartments think it so no one has called the police you have to scream out you have to scream fire don't be bewildered by the <laughs> bystander effect <laughs> Please, one of you just phone the police. Don't assume the other one's Everybody have. call. Everybody call the police. This going to be a super meta deaf scream. Or you have to yell. Because in that bystander effect thing, they always like tips to kind of in a situation to kind of get someone to actually do something. If there's like a crowd of people, you point at one person and you say, you call the police and then they will call the police. Yeah. And so I could be like, number two. <laughs> Call the police. What if the people in apartment two aren't in? No. What do then you we're mean? super screwed. Oh my god. The rest of the apartment's gonna be like, oh it's fine. Number two are probably talking to the police right now while we're getting like stabbed to death by a guy in a hockey mask. No what? Is it bad that what I think like when you know you have those horrible thoughts of like something bad happening, like someone breaking in or whatever, that all I really think about is Rudy, our cat. Like all I think is like Someone breaks in to steal stuff, they're going to let the cat out by accident, surely. Yeah, this is a strange fear. <laughs> While we're being murdered in the bedroom, Rudy is wandering the hallway. I mean, like, so what? Like, I think he's going to be fine. And then my other fear he's is gonna that be they kill afraid. him or take yeah, him. Yeah, that's a more realistic fear rather than well, no, Rudy I'm... goes on his big adventure in the city <laughs> while we're being throttled in the bathtub. <laughs> No, I, I started low. I don't know why I started at breaking in. Because we're not here. So they just accidentally let Rudy out because it's a cat. They don't care. They're worried about seeing the TV. I understand why you're afraid of that. Though. Yeah, and then my fears go all the way up to actual someone yeah. breaking in and wanting to hurt us. And they killing the cat as well. Or taking it, taking him with him. A He's like, oh, I napper. like this cat and I'll just take it. Catnap sounds close to kidnap. I don't know why I I'm making that observation, but it just struck me. <laughs> yeah. And if you think something, say something. Isn't that the... No, it's if you see something, say something. I know. If you think I was it, making a funny. Shot. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to yeah. say, it's, I understand why you're afraid of that. Because remember earlier we were talking about when we lived in London and Rudy would find ways out of the window ah. onto the roof terrace. Oh, my God. We had it so secure. We had it so secure. I don't know how secure we had it if he was able to slip no, out. No, no, we did because I remember saying we can only have it like an inch open or two inches open. We should say what is one inch or two inch open. We had like these windows that opened out. Yeah, so and they we opened would out tie together. them with some string yeah. so they could only open like an inch or two away from the window frame. Well, he somehow got out and he must, he got out in the middle of the night while we were asleep. And uh, we don't know how long he was out there, but when I woke up, he wasn't around so i searched i <laughs> he made wasn't around well, he wasn't like drinking an espresso <laughs> reading the new yorker checking the stocks it was a studio apartment so you literally only have to turn your head twice and if you can't see him then you know he's not there so and i looked at the window and i remember it being like one side was pushed closed and i was thinking he i just immediately said he's got out and our only way out to this terrace was actually to climb out the window. So I kind of jumped out the window in my pyjamas and had a quick, like, just look left and right. 
And luckily, I feel like there was like this shed yeah. type thing on the roof. I think it had some kind of fan or ventilation system. Yeah. The doors there. to that had been left open by like the guy who worked there. Or the hobo who was sleeping yeah. in there. And I just kind of walked straight up to it and went, Rudy. And he came out and he was all dirty. He was all sooty. Yeah. And frightened. And he just came straight to me. And I picked him up and brought him back in. And then I tried to remember, I tried to kind of get towels to clean him. But you can't really clean him. You need to I, like wet wipes. I was terrified. Yeah. But it, in a way, it was lucky. We were glad because yeah. right down beneath the roof terrace is like a main, main road, road with a lot of traffic. Yeah. Like, we always hear big lorries going up and down there. And if he had got down onto the street level by the road, I mean, who knows what could have happened to him. I honestly feel like never really being out, he would have just kind of got hit by a car immediately or something. Like, he would have been so scared by the noise. His skittishness might have kind of caused him to run out into the road or something. And I don't even think about it. It's horrible. Yeah. But he, but then there's been a lot more times when he's gotten out in a more innocuous way. Like he runs between your legs when you open the door yeah. to the postman. And he just kind of wanders around the hallway. But that's a good thing about living in an apartment. You know he's just going to run into the hallway and he's not going to get out of the building. Unless he figures out how to use an elevator. Yeah. <laughs> and in that case, we've probably got bigger fish to fry than... This is like the concept of a movie. A cat... I don't know where I was a going. A cat with figures that. out an elevator, becomes an <laughs> elevator baron. He starts a company that makes and produces and distributes he elevators. He wears one of those little suits. You know the guys that ride the elevator with you. Oh, that's what, what, are, I what meant. are they called? They're like bellboys, right? Like bellhops or something. Are they also the people who take your luggage up yeah, in a I think hotel? So. Maybe they're two different jobs. It seems like it shouldn't be two. Is that instead of thing? Like the guy in the formal in uniform who just like. Stands in the elevator all day and... It might be in America, in like fancy... I doubt it is here. That's That seems like a silly, silly Because we're job. all savages we here. We don't know how to press the buttons. Britland. Britlandia. Yeah. Britland... No, I was going to... You were going to try and sing the national anthem yeah. of Britlandia? I don't know. Where were you going with I that? I don't know. Speaking of not knowing where we're going, we should probably get on to our next topic. Our first topic, you Yes, mean. our first topic, even. Um, if you can believe it, the first topic wasn't the adventures and travails <laughs> of Rudy Cat. Rudy Cat. Although I feel like there's kind of a phantom segment on every episode where we talk about yeah. the exploits of our little kitty cat and how he's yep. either inconvenienced us or frightened us Doesn't or inconvenience us. savaged Shush. us with his claws and teeth. You can't say such things. He might be listening. He's one of our listeners. He's asleep right now in the bedroom, <laughs> on the bed. That's something that I feel like needs to be said. I need to name and shame him on the podcast. Why? When we go to sleep, I can't yeah. stretch my legs out anymore. Pretty much. I've officially been relegated to the fetal position <laughs> when I'm in it's slumber. Kind of funny. Because he sits at the bottom of the bed. I guess because that's the warmest place in the house during the night, which is fine. But the bed, it's only like a queen size. So we're both in it. And so there's not really much space besides that. But he still tries to like sidle up to like the tiniest little yeah. vacancy at the bottom of the bed. And I feel, and I was thinking the other day, I do tend to toss and turn when I sleep. So there must have been so many times when I've accidentally like 
bumped him with my foot and he just like glares at me in the no. middle of the night thinking about how he's going to get me back when he gets an opportunity to scratch my leg as I walk past during the day. Yeah, two things and I've got to say it. Queen size is the biggest size of bed you can get. It's bigger than king size? Yes. Wow, that's if very If we feminist. had a queen size... Hashtag yeah, feminism 2016. Hashtag woman power. Hashtag I'm with her. Hashtag who's her. That didn't really go over the way I wanted it to go. <laughs> <laughs> is that really true? Queen is bigger than king yes, size? Yes, queen is the biggest. I don't believe this. This doesn't the, sound real. Because you're a misogynist. Is that That's, what you're saying? Are you calling me out on the podcast? <laughs> and second of all, my other thing that I was going to say is, he doesn't just lie on the very corner of the bed, like what you'd imagine. He's like, he's in the middle of your middle. Yeah. And so you have to like scissor your legs around yep. him. Yeah. It's much really easier can... when he comes and just sits on you and goes to sleep there. Yeah, he does. He kind of, if I'm on my side, he kind of lies on my side. Or if I'm on my tummy, he lies on my back. So strange. Because... There's always, like, several moments throughout the night where I'm like, I need to turn over, but I know he's asleep. And so I kind of try to do it slowly. And then there's always that little bit where he kind of, like, falls, like, but yeah. also has to try to grab onto me. He tries me so to he stay fall. on as, as you turn yeah. over. It's so cute, slash, I don't know. There's been a few times when he's just came and kind of settled down between us, like, up near the pillows. Yeah. That's dangerous, though, I feel. Yeah. And I think he knows it's dangerous. You could dangerous. roll onto him. Yeah. Or, like, push him up towards the bedboard. Isn't it weird how Rudy doesn't go in the wardrobe anymore, it feels like? Yeah, he does. He was in it the other day, but I don't think he stayed in there. He went in there, kind of, I don't know, looked around. He was like, <laughs> I used to go in here. <laughs> yeah. I remember the memories of sitting on Mama's yeah. underwear and... Uh shoes i don't know what i don't know why he hasn't gone in there because it seems like it would be warm in there well now that we have put the electric blanket back on the bed i think we should go ahead people well yeah (laughs) because you know the chill of getting into a cold bed is so sharp it's like anything to take that off is worth it but yeah i think we should leave that on during the day for him because he does tend to spend his days just curled up sleeping on the bed when we're not in the the bedroom i like it when he crawls underneath the blanket but he never stays there we yeah. lift the blanket up for him when we're like getting ready to go to sleep and he kind of wanders in there and chirps a little bit and then i always put the blanket down like there's been a cave-in like he's a spelunker <laughs> and there's been some kind of catastrophic avalanche that's buried him inside the cave system what? and then he like tries to push his head out of it's one side so of the blanket. Cute. I think he thinks when you do that that you're gonna like make him stay in there. Yeah. Because he's always poked his head out like, no, no, I don't want to. I, I've changed my mind. But then in the daytime, sometimes he crawls under there and sleeps under there. So he clearly knows it's like safe. I don't know. I think he thinks it's not safe when we're in the bed, which yeah. is probably true. Which probably is true, yeah. I wouldn't want him to sleep under there. No. While we're asleep. How does he sleep under the covers? Like, I feel like there's not much oxygen. Yeah, Yeah, I don't know. The cats use less oxygen than humans. I have no idea. I feel like they must do because they've got smaller lungs. Yeah, but they still need to breathe every second like we do. Yeah, but I'm just saying like in terms of volume of air that they require compared to like a full-grown human. Maybe they know because they don't have that same type of 
need to think of everything every second where we would be constantly thinking i'm gonna run out of oxygen i'm gonna run out of oxygen shit i'm running out of oxygen when you're actually not you're panicking because you're just under the blanket it's not sealed in and so he probably just knows he's not gonna run out of oxygen so he just you know he just chill, chills out yeah i don't know little kitty cat i want to be on his level to see what he sees you can't you can't just get on your hands and knees and crawl about <laughs> Or we could put a GoPro on his collar and get, like, a cat's eye view of the apartment. Yeah, because I want to see us from his view. I think and he I mostly just sees our shins around. and our thighs. But he looks up. I feel like he doesn't look up very much when he's on the ground. Like, when he comes and sits with us on the couch, he'll look up at our faces. Yeah. But when he's, like, running about on the ground, he mostly just... Well, I feel like mostly he attacks your feet. Yeah. I was thinking the other day that I... He probably misses climbing on things. Because I feel like everywhere we've lived, he's had something to climb on top of and to, like, sleep on there or whatever. But they, this is the first place where there isn't anything. And so I worry if he, that he's missing. He does climb on stuff, though. What does he, he climbs climb on? on my desk. He but tried very... to get into the mic equipment yeah, that one time, did. which was super fun, knocking but it all down. I meant more so high, like the wardrobes and stuff. But we don't want him to climb on the wardrobe because how many times has he got somewhere high where we've yeah. lived other places? And then there's that like heart-stopping moment where you realize he's going to just... Jump even, from even it. though he climbed on several different things of varying height to get up there, <laughs> now that he needs to get down, he's going to just jump straight down yep. onto the floor like... From I mean, like a 13 foot feet, tall like so ad- wardrobe. Agilely. Well, he has those backwards knees on his hind <laughs> legs, right? I think they take kind of like Yeah, it has like impact. bouncy. They're like shock absorbers. Yeah, it's like a bounce. Like a spring. Yeah, but yeah. Like if you could see inside, it would be a spring. I feel like I don't need to see That's inside. Not true I can see either. the shape. It wouldn't be like a spring. He has like <laughs> curly bones. <laughs> he has like a, a bone that's in the shape of a yeah. coil. That would be horrendous. That would be horrendous. But useful. The sky is changing colour. It's slowly becoming morning. Yep. I like it when it's like daybreak. Twilight. I mean, it's still twilight even though it's morning. I know most people usually use the word twilight for like in the evening, but. I think it's still twilight when it's... It's basically just that time between night and day. Yeah. That's my favourite time. So, yeah. Should we move on to our first topic? Should we finally get into the podcast? So, yeah. The first topic is... We're going to be addressing the pink elephant in the room. And, of course, we're talking about the uh, endangered pygmy elephant that we adopted and painted pink with... uh, Animal abuse. With toxic, non-animal safe paint, because we're cruel. Where is Circus this going? masters. Yeah, obviously I'm kidding. I mean, we do have a pet elephant, but <laughs> I'm actually talking about Trump. You're taking a deep sigh. That's how I feel about Preparing Trump. yourself for this topic. <gasps> so, this could have been any number of news articles declaring his, his victory. His, remember we saw that so many different newspaper headlines yeah. were... Trump triumphs, and we were like, uh, oh, it was cringeworthy. The inventiveness of the print media astonishes they not re- us really once not again. Come up with anything else, yeah. And it's it just it's so funny how each one thought they were like, yeah. <laughs> giggle, giggle. alliteration, yeah. So yeah, the one that I actually saw though, which was the one I, where I read that Trump had won, is a New York Times 
news story with the suitably ponderous and solemn headline of Donald Trump is elected president in stunning repudiation of the establishment. And yeah, so we're going to talk about Trump. Or rather, we're going to talk about how... We're really going to talk about how we're not going to talk about Trump, if that makes sense, I feel like. Because really now, when people talk about Trump... I mean, okay, let me start off by saying... We didn't end up staying up through the like through the election night. Like I'm assuming some people did. We had had a long day and we couldn't stay up, um, and so we were gonna wake up to the news the next morning. And I remember waking up at like I don't know four a.m. or something or seven a.m. and saying to you, I had one percent left on my phone, do you remember? Yeah. And I like kind of mumbled to you, I think Trump's gonna win or something like that. Or Trump's on the verge of winning and you were like, no. And then we both just went back to sleep. And then I remember waking up and I was like, did he win? And I was like, yeah. Sadly so. So my initial reaction, because I, I you know, like we talked about before, we were like invested in this like most of the world. And my initial reaction was I cried. Like, I was devastated. It all felt very wrong and very real and very horrible. But then, by, like, day three or whatever, or day four, I was so fucking sick of seeing his name and hearing about him. And just... I know that people are, like, upset and scared and stuff, but... Maybe it's because I don't feel like I can do anything being British or whatever. And that's my kind of go-to of just being like, eye roll, close the window, do something else, you know? I think we both have come to the conclusion that it's like there's nothing left to say. Like, I feel like everything that could possibly be said about why it's horrendous and deeply surreal that... Donald Trump is the president of the United States yeah. has been said in every conceivable way with every tone of anguish and confusion and disbelief and it's just like yeah it's almost like what is there left to say but of course it's such a fascinating yeah. thing to happen that it's like you can't help but talk about it and yeah like on the night that it happened like you said we went to sleep because we wouldn't have been able to stay up that night even if we wanted to because our sleep schedule was basically on track and yeah. we were sleeping during the night. So can you imagine how horrible it would have been if we'd stayed awake all the way till morning? Yeah. We're completely bleary-eyed and like delirious and we're just refreshing the the news sites endlessly and then we finally see the news. That would have just been like I feel like I would have had an devastating. actual breakdown. Yeah. I woke up at one point, um, I think about this the same time you're talking about when you said your phone was almost out of battery, and I saw I had a text at like 3am from my, my friend Matthew, shout out to Matthew, Matthew. if you're listening out there, and Hi, I'm sure Matthew. you are, he's going to be a podcast guest soon, I hope so, we're springing this on him now, he's like, I didn't agree to that, I didn't sign a waiver, <laughs> a release form, but yeah, I got a text from him basically saying, it looks like Trump is going to win. And then I had no more texts from him. No. So it was like some kind of cataclysm had happened that just wiped out the rest of the world. 
And so, yeah, I woke up about seven or eight and I refreshed the news sites and I saw that it had happened and I was just like, and this is the new world that we're in now. It's, it's already over. We're already in the, you know, post sanity world, the post truth world, like better just get and the thing is you hadn't woken up yet so i just got up and had a bath and got dressed and had some cereal alone in the silence just reflecting on this strange turn of events and yeah it was such an odd feeling of like the world is the same but it's completely changed also even though i wasn't shocked or surprised i was shocked and surprised like i didn't for a minute really ever think oh it's like a landslide for Hillary this Trump thing it's yes it's kind of going nearly all the way but it's never actually going to win I never really thought that I don't think I really did think he had every chance of winning and so it while it was like a shock and surprise it wasn't because it was like I knew this could happen But yeah, it was such an odd feeling. It was like with the Brexit thing, which I know is not the same, but the next day felt really strange. Yeah, well, that's the thing. For so many people, it was actually such a huge surprise because it seemed so unlikely. I mean, I totally get why people are so distraught, so disappointed, so flummoxed by this. There is a certain faith, I think, in the bright future of what we might call the American experiment, which relies upon in turn, a certain faith in the incrementally improving wisdom of the American electorate. And I think that with this turn of events, that has been more or less stamped out of a lot of people. And sometimes it's useful and healthy to be disabused of the illusions you hold, but it's also a painful process. And it also makes you doubt other fundamental beliefs you had about the core goodness of other people. And There's this progressive idea that we're gradually proceeding towards this utopian endpoint and we're very close to the end now. It's all just micro adjustments. It's all just these tiny course corrections to make sure we stay on the right course. As more and more we realize this ultimate goal of creating a perfect, open, tolerant society. And when something like Trump's victory happens, it disproves all of that. It shows that when we reach these crossroads where it feels like we're never going to go down the dark road, that's just there as this kind of, this unthinkable, fantastically disastrous alternative, which serves to goad us into picking the right option. And so we never think that the calamity is going to happen. It always seems like we're going to look back in 10 years from now and, and think, can you believe that we were ever at this precipice? But of course, the reality is that sometimes the coin toss goes the other way and it shows that the path is not guaranteed. It shows that things can go wrong. We do take steps back. It's not just lateral or forward steps. Sometimes we really do take a definitive, destructive step backwards. So we can't get complacent about that type of thing. You can't get into the mindset of thinking that the happy outcome is just a historical inevitability now that we've reached this kind of pinnacle of civilization i mean if you were watching the polls like i remember going on the new york times in the weeks before the election and it would be like 92 percent 
yeah. chance that Hillary will clinch the the presidency. And it's like when you see that, it, you almost start to get into that thinking of like, well, the crisis is going to be averted. Like there's nothing to worry about. And then when it does swing the other way, it does seem so inexplicable. And so like... Obviously, we now know that the polls were wrong, but also Hillary did win the popular vote. Yeah. So... That's a very strange aspect yeah. of American democracy. It's such an odd system. Yeah, but it's one of those things that's just never going to change because although there's a bunch of, obviously, embittered Hillary advocates who are now like, we should go to the popular vote, it's like next time if the Democratic guy wins the electoral vote but not the popular vote, they'll change their tune. It's like someone yeah. always gets screwed over by the electoral college system but there's just not enough bipartisan think, support to change yeah. it i do think it should be changed though like it should just be one vote per yeah. person and the most the person who gets the most votes wins yeah that's the most intuitive way to do it but it's one of those legacy mm. institutions that's just embraded into the bedrock of american society at this point so why don't people say you know, go out because it doesn't matter who you vote for, your vote counts. It actually doesn't. Yeah. It actually doesn't count in a lot of places. In a lot of states, if it's like a safe blue yeah. state or safe red I was, state. Yeah, I was talking to my friend and she, she lives in America and she was saying how um, even though she voted for Hillary, it didn't matter because her state's blue. So it would have gone Hillary anyway. And that, but she still voted. But like, I don't know, that just seems so strange to me. It's like no matter who you vote for, where depending on where you live it may not matter yeah and that's confusing to me that's very confusing i do think the system should be changed i don't think it's very likely to happen though nope sadly there's i guess there's a moral victory in having the most votes overall but i don't yeah. think that's going to be much solace to no, I don't hillary think... clinton in her coming years of depression and frustration and what does she do now? Does she go back to being a senate? Like I'm guessing she just continues to make a crap ton of money doing public mm. speeches and stuff like that. Sad. Yeah, and now there are all these protests of hashtag not my president where people kind of feel somehow cheated or like they were overwhelmed by this hidden majority that had these repellent ideas and voted for this unconscionable candidate which is kind of interesting to see because obviously if there had been a hillary victory everyone would have expected this huge backlash of yeah. you know vehement disappointment and accusations of the system being rigged from trump's diehard fan base because they are so impassioned and so you know noxious <laughs> <laughs> or yeah that's I guess that's a fair point. It's hard too because being like I wonder what it feels like for like do Americans know that the I mean they must do because they know that they affect the whole world when it comes to everything else. But I wonder how much they realise like other people are affected by this. Like I said earlier, when I woke up, I cried. And when you talk about protests and things, it's hard because I feel like 
being someone who's British and in Britain, I don't think there's anything I can kind of do. And you do kind of want to show your support or you want to kind of rally against it. But at the same time, I'm not an American citizen, so I don't have any rights. And so I don't really know what to do or what to like say. And at this point, honestly, I'm just kind of ugh at the whole thing. Probably fueled by the fact that I feel like I can't do anything. Another part of me is, I don't know if this is coming from like the hope that's left over or whatever, but part of me wants to be like, because he's such a flip-flopper, he's an awful person, but because he's such a flip-flopper trying to just please people, like, as and when to get what he wants, like... There's a part of me that hopes that maybe his stance on certain things isn't actually as strong as he's trying to make you believe. Like, when he did that interview, like, the other day, and he was like, um, LGBT rights, he basically said he wasn't bothered with any of that and that can stay the same, that's all done. And so I think there are some things, hopefully, that he really isn't going to, like, change or whatever. But again, I think maybe that's just the hope part of me that's hoping that. Well, there are a lot of people now who are kind of positing that working hypothesis of he is really just a con man who figured out a way to market himself to this group of people who feel disenfranchised and who feel frustrated and who are very anti-political correctness and very leaning conservative, leaning rural, leaning working class. And so throughout the campaign, he basically said what they wanted to hear, no matter how outrageous or unrealistic it was. But now he's in the presidency. He's going to kind of gravitate back towards the centre, towards sanity. And there does seem to be some evidence of that in terms of how quickly, how transparently, how comprehensively he's starting to backtrack on all these crazy claims and all these campaign promises he's made i mean it's amazing to see that like a week or two after becoming president-elect he can start this mealy-mouthed kind of um he can start walking back on all these things he said he was going to do and there doesn't seem to be the huge backlash against him where his you know advocates are turning against him en masse because they have such faith in him and not just in him but in what he represents so i think there is potentially and i guess maybe this is sourced from a kind of naive optimism but i think there are a lot of people now who are thinking all that stuff he said that got people's dander up really was all just bluster and all just showmanship and kind of appealing to the lowest common denominator But now he has this momentous responsibility on his shoulders. Now he is, quote unquote, the leader of the free world. He is going to do the right thing and approach things from a more realistic and pragmatic and responsible manner. And maybe that will be the case, but I guess we'll have to wait and see with bated breath. I see him in two lights. One light is... He really doesn't know what he's doing and he is a con man, like you said. He flip-flops and he kind of goes where the money is, so to speak. Like, he he sees what people want and then he tries to play up to it in order to get what he wants, right? And so, if that's true, then he really doesn't know what he's doing and he's 
Because he's going to have to lean on horrible people like Mike Pence and all those other shitty people that he's appointing. Whereas if he's the other Trump that I see where, yeah, some of those things still apply. He's a flip-flop, right? He's a con man. He isn't as intelligent as he likes to think so. But he is also kind of like a railroader. Like he does just kind of like make decisions and doesn't want to listen to other people because he knows best. And if he is that person, and we've already seen that he can disagree publicly with Mike Pence, I hope that he's that person. Because... Taking on the hope that I had before that he doesn't feel so strongly about certain things. If he tries to make these decisions himself, maybe those results won't be as bad as we think. Whereas if he's leaning on like Mike Pence and whatever and he's like, what do you think? Mike Pence is obviously going to be steering him, him in the shitty direction that we don't want to go in. Do you get what I'm saying? Like, there's two ways of seeing him. They're both shit, don't get me wrong. But I do think one of them is better than the other. I just think it's a a dire outcome yeah. if we're hoping that Trump is going to be this tyrannical voice of reason who is like surrounds himself with idiots and people who just want to ride his coattails and who have these kind of disagreeable opinions and perspectives. And if we're thinking like, well, that's okay because Trump is going to, you know, steer things in a good direction. Strange because when it's like a new president or an election or something that might not directly affect us like the way it will affect Americans, but it does affect us. It definitely has a knock-on effect in terms of how people view things politically. And so, and obviously I also don't want to see things, certain things change in America because that would suck. Like, plus I also have family who live in America and friends who live in America, so I don't want to see bad things that affect them either um so so it's difficult not being there but still having all these feelings about it and not knowing where to put them yeah i see what you're saying i mean this may seem like a facile question but do you think that strength of the reaction this like histrionic tantrum of like nothing's ever going to be the same again we're on the road to ruin this is the start of the apocalypse do you think that is a justified reaction Or do you think a more pragmatic approach that takes into account how historically the presidency has kind of tempered even kind of more extreme uh, political candidates? When they get into office, they do kind of simmer down and they're kind of beaten down by the reality of you have this incredible responsibility on your shoulders and you've got to start making better decisions, decisions that are more agreeable to the most amount of people. Yeah, it's a strange one because that's kind of playing into what I said earlier about how I see him in two lights and he could end up being not as strongly, like, you know, he could end up not feeling or doing things as strongly as you think he's going to. Um, This election and then the Obama terms, though those were the, like, most invested I've ever been in terms of the US, US politics. It's also the time when I've had the most knowledge um so I, I feel like I can only really properly say in terms of as far back as when Obama was first elected but I, I do definitely feel that like even though you know I'm sure people were very upset about Bush getting elected I really do feel this is different like there are people like when you go on Facebook for instance I have a lot a lot of people on my Facebook are actually American more than there are Brits and 
most of them, all their statuses are since the election is, is how scared and angry they are and how things are going to change or how they've already seen things change in the streets with the way people act. And, you know, so even if Trump doesn't end up doing crazy things like he says he's going to, I think it's changed in terms of how the people are. It's kind of like with Brexit. It's like people were hateful and racist before, but it's kind of like with these decisions and these results, it's almost given certain people who are that way inclined, it's given them permission to almost act out. Instead of being like racist and hateful behind closed doors or on the sly, it's more like, yeah, we're going to see it in the street and we're going to like spray paint things. And yeah, we're gonna, you we know, finally won. Fuck things we up. We finally and, got the platform yeah. that we've been desiring. So I feel like whether he actually does some crazy shit or not, things will have changed forever. Yeah. Well, isn't that true to say of any turn of events in a historical sense? Things would have changed forever if Hillary Clinton became president. Maybe not in such an obvious and drastic way. Yeah, I I just think that if you take a long-term view, I I feel like the Trump phenomenon is likely to not have the lasting effect that people think. Mostly because I think Trump's voter base, his evangelical support of like, this guy is our God Emperor and he is going to fix everything that's wrong and he is going to, you know, usher out this political correctness culture and this kind of bleeding heart liberalism that we all hate blah 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 i think when they see that trump isn't going to do these outrageous things that he said he's going to do and one of the things i was talking to matthew about when i I called him up after i think the day after the election and we had this marathon like three hour long phone call where we hashed out how we were feeling in the aftermath and talked about how things might unfold going on I think we both agreed that there are several Trump campaign promises that are literally impossible for him to carry out. The obvious one is the wall. There's no way that he can get Mexico to pay for like a trillion dollar building project unless he uses, you know, the United States standing army and invades Mexico and raids their coffers and brings back all that loot and treasure and uses that to build the wall i mean it's just not going to happen it's probably not even going to happen if he tries to do it through congress if he tries to raise the funds domestically i mean the money is just not going to be there when you're already operating at a budget deficit so i think fundamentally that's a unkeepable campaign promise and that's one of his central ones that's what people would chant at his campaign rallies, build the wall and Mexico is going to pay for it, blah, blah, blah. But he's not going to be able to do that. I think that's clear to anyone with kind of a cool-headed review of the facts on the ground. And so the question is, is there going to be a big backlash against him? And I think there is going to be because the people who voted for him really do think that he's going to do these things. They really do think that he's somehow going to lock up Hillary Clinton, even though there have been two FBI reviews into the case and they've both times not recommended prosecution. They really do think that he's going to do a blanket ban on all Muslim immigration into the US. And more and more, it seems like that's not going to happen either. He's starting to backtrack on all these different things. And so I think more than likely, he's going to do some damage quote unquote but i think it's going to be much more minimal than people think i mean it's going to have long lasting knock-on effects especially if you consider things like he can put 
a candidate onto the Supreme Court and that because there are lifetime terms that's going to outlast his presidency in terms of the effect that has on US politics and US law but I think at the end of these four years almost kind of like in the same way with the Obama term where people were disillusioned and they were disappointed they felt like this guy was going to come in and change things in a fundamental sense and improve things in a fundamental sense and then when he didn't or he wasn't able to or he was tempered by the restraints of being in the highest office in the land they started to fall away a little bit and that's what I think is going to happen with Trump I think at the end of these four years the people who were chanting at his campaign rallies that were foaming at the mouth to try and get this guy into office i think they are going to be a lot cooler on the prospect of another four years of trump then maybe we'll latch on to another strong man charismatic guy where it's like now this guy is going to fix everything now this guy's going to fix everything now this other guy's going to fix everything and i think they're going to splinter a little bit whereas before they were united behind this one shining figure of crushing the establishment and kind of restarting things once you get to that epicenter of the blast. I feel like a lot of the times when people are disappointed in a president because they didn't do as much, is because people seem to think that when there's a new president or a new party or whatever in office, that you're going to see, like... It's like black and white. They think it's going to be this massive, massive change. And you could say, that's the change. That's what was there before. And it's not there now or vice versa. A lot of the times they do do a lot. They just, it's just not as tangible. It's not as like, it's not as massive as people, I think, think that they can do. And I'm not saying that the president can't make changes like that, but... I do often really think that people do think they are going to go in and completely change it and turn it on its head, and that's never going to be the case. Although I do think that's what obviously what a lot of people think Trump is going to do, um, obviously for the good in terms of the people that voted for him and then in, in for the bad for people who didn't want him in office. Um, but I do hope that it is going to be the case of he's really just not going to be as crazy as people think he's going to be. Like we said before, he's a con man. He's just going to say what he needs to say to get there. Now he's there doesn't mean you are going to kind of, doesn't mean he's going to harness the power. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's, this could potentially be a good thing um, overall. If you think about, I think maybe at the end of the four years, we might be at a point where for the foreseeable future, people won't rally behind a guy who is a Trump-like figure, where it's all bluster, where it's all showmanship, where it's all Robin Peter to pay Paul in terms of ideas. Like you tell one group of people you're going to do this and then another group of people you're going to do that. And sometimes they're conflicting and sometimes they don't even make any sense on their own. I think hopefully if Trump's presidency is disappointingly bland and boring and kind of predictable in terms of nothing really gets changed or nothing major gets changed when you compare it to what he promised he was going to do. Maybe we find ourselves in a situation where afterwards people don't want a guy like that again. They want a safe bet like a Hillary Clinton or on the Republican side like a Mitt Romney, like a Ted Cruz. Like they want this, the typical politician again. 
because they know what they're getting in terms of that. Whereas with Trump, they got their hopes up in thinking this guy was really going to do something amazing. He was really going to change things. And he never did. I feel like maybe uh, our viewpoint, though, of what we're saying right now is kind of fueled by that wishful thinking of, like, just wanting him to be that way so he doesn't. Because even though that could totally happen, I do definitely think it is going to lean the other way. I mean, he might not make waves for the whole four years, like, be this crazy president where it's, like, every step of the way he's doing, he's fucking, you know, turning up rocks and, you know, throwing shit. But... I do think he is going to do some things. Even if he does end up being like this kind of lackluster president, I do think he is still going to do some things that are crazy because he's kind of unpredictable in a predictable way, if that makes sense. Um, like you said, I think it might it might be that those massive things that he does will be those long-term effect things where he appoints people and they, you know, they're still going to be there when he's gone. Um, and then say, like, the Democrats get back enough, and it's like, shit, what are we going to do now? There are no Democrats here to, like, help me. And so I just don't want us to lean too much in the direction of, like, thinking... Everything is going to be fine. That's what's going to happen. It's not a big deal. Yeah. Yeah, I guess, like you said, it's almost like that is the mind's defense mechanism in terms of we can't do anything to stop this. Yeah. This ha- We couldn't do anything to stop it while it was happening because... We're not U.S. citizens and we can't vote. Um, But now, obviously, not only can we not do anything, but even people in America can't do anything. This is now going to be their reality for the next four years. So it's almost like your mind wants to be like, no, it's not so bad. Like, here are these kind of self-serving rationalizations of, he's not really going to be able to do these things. It's not really going to be that big of a deal. It might just be business as usual. Um, And I think a lot of people are kind of taking that tact of like, yeah, he's going to be able to do this, this and that, like in terms of damaging civil liberties and damaging America's standing in the world. But people are really overblowing this, that and that, like these bigger things. And it's almost like they've accepted that first category of calamity um, in order to basically be like, yeah, that second wave of like apocalypse, you know, that's not coming. Like people are really just kind of, exaggerating and and throwing these hissy fits and doomsaying and stuff like that um i see that but i also think that this whole idea of trump has emboldened these sects of society that obviously we would find repugnant all these white nationalists and these racists and misogynists and sexists and whatever i think he in a way the trump presidency might turn out to be worthwhile in a strange sort of way in that he's kind of turned over the soil of American society. And now we are seeing all these previously subterranean insects of like, these guys were underground. They were, you know, um, using pseudonyms on Twitter and they did have these closed like forms on the internet. They did have these clandestine meetings. They weren't willing to show their faces before because they felt so marginalized and so hated and perhaps rightly so given how repugnant their views are but now they've come out into the open and they're openly boasting this is who we are and this is our hateful regressive agenda and in a way it might prove to be worthwhile if trump does get ousted in four years but one of the after effect is we now see who the enemy is they've now revealed themselves into plain sight in terms of 
we are this hateful minority and we are going to speak openly and we are going to identify ourselves openly. And so maybe going onwards, it will be easier to combat that element of society now that they've reared their ugly head. I hope so. In the daylight. Though I don't, I feel like the glass is only half empty when I think about that type of thing. Mostly probably just because I am of the viewpoint that I feel like a lot of people were shocked that there were that many hate for people um because obviously a lot of people think if you voted for trump you you view everything the way he views everything um and i am kind of inclined to agree with that for the most part there are definitely some people that will have voted for trump purely because he is a republican or he is a Republican for the time being so that he could get into office. Yeah. Um, and they want Republic, the Republican Party to be in office. And obviously because of the trickle-down effect of like the different states and stuff. Um, but I think for the most part, people voted for him because they liked him and they liked what he had to say. And I think a lot of people are surprised by how hateful people are. And they're surprised that their auntie or whoever voted for Trump and shit, that's their views. Yeah. But I'm not surprised because I think a lot of people are hateful bastards and a lot of people are mean. And I feel like, you know, obviously everyone wants to be positive and be like, no, there's way more nice people than there are bad people. But I don't know if that's true, honestly. So I don't necessarily think what you're saying is going to be true because I think what I'm trying to say is there are more hateful people than there are nice people. But that's definitely coming from a place of like negativity and like being angry at the whole situation. I hope that that's not true. Yeah. It's interesting the element of surprise and all this, this idea that we, we couldn't have predicted this. The polls were so like catastrophically wrong. And people are saying like, oh, we're never going to trust polls ever again. Yeah. Like polls are done for. Like that is all horseshit, basically, because. Polls are a crucial element of election season. People like the theatre and the suspense of looking at the polls day by day, week by week, as the, the election day looms. They like getting that kind of drip of information of now he's leading in this state, now she's leading in that state, now her negative reaction is this, his negative reaction is that. This is how people are responding to questions about the candidate. I think it's now become so ingrained in the television watching public in the spectacle of the election season that you do watch the polls carefully and you do try to use them as the tea leaves with which to prophesize how the election is going to play out i think there's such an important entertainment aspect of that for most people that whether or not the polls got it incredibly wrong this time or last time or whatever I think they're always going to be around and people are always going to rely on that aspect of tantalization and everyone wants to play the prediction game beforehand and to try and figure out how things are going to play out. I think to a certain extent, yeah, but I also think maybe the polls have got to prove themselves again for a lot of people to kind of... I feel like up until this election, the polls were always right. I don't know if that's actually true, but that's the way people were reacting. The polls are never wrong. I can't believe the polls were wrong. But it's like, to begin with, I don't know why you would believe every single person who voted to set to really tell you the truth about who they voted for. Um, 
But they were obviously doing something right because up until this election they were presumably right most of the time, if not all the time. So I think for a lot of people they are probably going to have to prove themselves again before people are like, yeah, we're actually going to watch the polls and be like, this is what's going to happen. But I think despite that, you are right, people are still going to do exactly what they've always done. It's a process, you know, when the election starts, you know, that whole process is going to be the same that whole theatricalness of it and, you know, what the tools that people use in order to understand and kind of move forward throughout the election, they're all going to still be the same. I don't think any of that's going to change. It's kind of fascinating how the polls can end up influencing the actual election result. Like when you see all these polls saying that it's going to be a landslide for Hillary, like she's got a 90% chance of winning. How many people see that and think, well, I don't need to go and stand in a line in the cold to cast my vote for Hillary because, you know, she's already secured the presidency, basically. Um, And so it's weird how the snake eats its own head in a way where the polls are trying to predict the outcome of the election. And yet, in a way, they end up influencing it so that, the polls themselves end up being wrong in retrospect. I think that is true. I think, especially because there are a lot of people that think my one vote isn't going to count. But what they then also don't think is that, actually, if I think like that, other people are going to think like that, and then none of us are going to vote. So I think, yeah, I feel like it definitely would influence you. If you saw on every single channel, you know, basically... We all know that this was kind of a joke. Trump was basically never going to win. Of course Hillary's going to win. She's winning by this much in the polls. I do think it is going to affect those people that like aren't too bothered to begin with or maybe they're undecided or maybe they're busy and it was really going to be hard for them to find time to vote. So now it's like, well, now I don't have to worry. So I do think those things do influence But I don't know how you would change it because it seems like this is something, like I was just saying, that is like ingrained in the people. It's like, no, we go to the polls. We look at the polls to tell us what's going on. Yeah. I mean, what else is there to say, really? Like we said at the, the start of this, it's almost like you're kind of rubbed of any original insight or emotional expression about this because everyone seems to have the same kind of shell shock of like this is so bizarre and so surreal and these are the clear reasons why this is you know a calamity this is unacceptable this is going to set us back in so many different ways that it's almost like when you're asked about it it's almost like you have to just be like yeah i feel the same way as as all these other people who are expressing it more eloquently than i probably could in the moment um and yet that doesn't, it's not going to amount to anything because Trump is president. There are all these naysayers, all these critics who are saying, you know, this should never have happened. Like, I can't believe people did this. I'm so disappointed in the country. But it's like, yeah, this is, you have to kind of accept it and figure out a way to to move on and to try and, I guess, if you care about American politics, if you care about representative democracy you start planning for the next election cycle you start thinking about how you can craft the rhetoric in such a way that trump doesn't get elected again and a guy like trump can never be elected again i agree and i definitely think it's clear that we like we said before we're really like fatigued by it all yeah it's just kind of now we just have to wait to see what happens which is 
awful because that's obviously coming from a position of not being able to do anything. So, yeah, so I think that's probably a good time to move on to the next topic. Yeah. We're definitely done with this whole Trump business for a while. Yeah, I feel thoroughly fatigued and drained. I'm in the refractory period (laughs) of Trump frustration and negativity. Definitely. Okay, so... I feel like we should have been moving on to something like light and fun. Alas. We're not. So basically I was on Reddit. Browsing through the not safe for work subreddit as you do. No. And on Ask Reddit, there was someone asked, um, people who oppose LGBT people without mentioning the Bible or anything religious, say why you oppose LGBT people, basically. Um and the thread was quite uneventful, really. I did think there was going to be, like, lots of people in there giving, like, trying to give their specific points. There was a few, but it didn't really go the way that it was going to go. Um, but it did make me think, because there are some people, some people's answers that are just truly ridiculous. Um, I felt like the thread... There wasn't even anything that extreme either that I thought that I might see. And I think what I realised is it's actually kind of the middle of the road responses that kind of really got my goat, if you know what I mean. For instance, um, people who are kind of like, you know, I don't care if you're gay, but if you shove it in my face, then we've got a problem or whatever. And, you know... If I make a joke about gay people, it's not because I hate gay people. It's just, you know, don't take offence. Like, no offence. And I'm like, it's those people who say shit like that who don't really think they're doing anything wrong and they think it's all a joke and ha-ha and, like, people can do whatever they want as long as I don't see it. It's those people, I feel like, that do the most damage. Well, they lay the kind of cultural safety net for the the real hate mongers, the people who really despise lgbt people for who they are and for what they are and who really would like to see them removed from society either violently or otherwise this idea that i just i I can't see a way to reconcile the prospect of disliking someone for who they are in a non-hateful disgusting way like i just i think it involves some ethical gymnastics that i think wouldn't wouldn't withstand any kind of real scrutiny or criticism. And yeah, I think without a religious justification where you basically downplay any kind of logic or rational reasoning and just say, well, the Bible says it, the Quran says it, I don't really see any remotely consistent way to say that two people engaging in a consensual sexual activity is in any way bad or negative or to be discouraged i think that's where like like some of the people's responses without them obviously being able to actually explicitly say this is because of my religion or my background or my upbringing or whatever that was rooted in religion they always try and use it as this weird kind of like well it's just a gateway to like incest and bestiality and all this stuff and like if you're allowed to marry someone of the same sex who's stopping you from marrying your brother or you know whatever and it's like no not no that's not how any of this works like just because I feel like as well that takes me to 
a lot of people who are like don't like gay people or whatever or are very confused by it they think that gay people just say we're talking about a gay man they think that that gay man fancies all men like it's like all of a sudden it's like no he's gonna want to like see my dick or he's gonna want to like do shit to me and I'm like that's not how things work it works exactly the same as you and your wife or your girlfriend or whatever it's exactly the same and then there was a lot of people that were also like I don't care if you're gay but it's like why does it have to be your whole life why does you being gay have to come up in every conversation but what they don't realize because it's normal quote unquote to them is that I'm sure a lot of like aspects of their life is governed by the fact that they have a wife and they have to do certain things or they have to be certain places or whatever because of their wife and they don't because they see that as normal they don't see that as like putting that into someone's face or putting their business out there they see this whole being gay and everything like shoved in their face because they don't like it and it started to annoy me a bit when they were like, you know, I don't I don't care if you're gay, but shove it in my face. It was just very transparent. Yeah. It's in a way kind of fascinating from a psychological standpoint, this idea that heterosexual people in heterosexual marriages feel like their union, their marriage is going to somehow be altered or devalued or changed in a undesirable negative way if you also allow homosexual couples to get married it doesn't really make any sense like you have chosen to come together for the reasons that you've chosen to come together and it doesn't seem reasonable to think that other people coming together for the reasons that they want to come together and in the way that they want to come together has any effect on your partnership whatsoever and that i think the sheer illogicality of it gives you a hint that there is something underlying these nominal arguments there is some kind of hatred there is some kind of aversion i mean when it comes to marriage gay marriage part of the problem is that marriage is a religious institution and obviously um the bible says you shouldn't be gay and so i think a lot of religious people can't wrap their head around that like i mean i'm talking about sort of like sane intelligent religious people who actually probably could try to separate the two their kind of like instilled hate and the fact that there are gay people and they should be allowed to get married um because it will always come back to yeah but god says gay people it's it's wrong yeah, so I think for a start, maybe we should we need to separate the two. Although I don't know how we can do that since marriage has always been it's always been rooted in in religion. Um, a lot of people don't want to get married because it's rooted in religion, and they're not religious. Um, so I don't know. And this whole idea of like, well, don't shove your homosexuality down my throat like there are gay evangelists like as if homosexuality was a religion that they're trying to get you to subscribe to the irony of that of course is how many of the people who do take this anti-lgbt stance are deeply religious people who would want for example 
the Bible to be taught in schools as literal truth. They do want their religion imposed on other people in all these different sort of ways. They do want God to be part of the Pledge of Allegiance. They do want, um, you know, the Ten Commandments to be displayed in, in courthouses and stuff like that. They have all these different sort of insidious ways where they are trying to insert their religious ideas, their religious beliefs, their religious institutions into public life into greater society and yet they're the same people who are trying to say like oh you know this gay agenda they're trying to get gay people normalized they're trying to get gay people on tv and movies they're trying to make it seem like it's just this normal acceptable thing how dare they when the truth is that they are the ones who are trying to brainwash people they are the ones that are trying to impose themselves on other people in society who don't want to be imposed on I know what you mean, and this came up a few times in the thread. It was like, well, you say that like gay people are always talking about like how they're so gay and all this, but actually, I know people who, where religion is their whole life, the way they talk, they're always talking about how well God knows best or whatever, and they need to pray and they go to church like four times a week, and you know they try to get other people to pray with them. They talk about you know, why don't you come to church with me? God is kind of like in every aspect of their life. And they were trying to basically put that against the fact that the other person was trying to say that, well, that's what gay people do. And they were saying exactly what you were saying. Well, a lot of religious people do do that. A lot of religious people are kind of like preachy or whatever you want to call it. They do kind of Everything they do is kind of rooted in religion and it's obvious, you know. You can tell sometimes that a person is religious just by the way they are. And so if just like people can say I can tell that a person's gay by the way they are, what we need to really be saying is that it doesn't matter. No one cares. Like, it's not a big deal. But obviously the, the people that are against it or that don't like it can't get to that point. Well, they're miles away from that idea. They don't want their children to be gay they don't want people around them to be gay and there is that fear that if you do have these gay pride events if you do have gay culture openly celebrated and explored in mainstream society they do worry that their kids are going to get these ideas mm. these kids are going to be influenced towards this you know quote-unquote deviant sexuality and on one hand it's like first of all if you think that you're quote-unquote heterosexual kids are going to be converted to homosexuality because they glimpsed a gay pride parade one time then you don't have any grasp of what sexuality is yeah. to begin with you think it's some kind of mind virus that you know you catch um and second of all that whole idea of yeah you can be gay it's fine but just keep it to yourself you know stay in the closet don't openly express any kind of indication of your homosexuality that is obviously a hideous idea in itself it's like people should be allowed and encouraged to celebrate who they are and to express who they are and to associate with whoever they want to associate in whatever way they want to because they aren't doing anything wrong they're doing what they want to do consensually with other consenting adults there was definitely a lot of that in the thread as well where it was like Really what they were saying is the more we accept it, the more it will be acceptable. Yeah. And so more people will do God it. God forbid. And that's where this guy was trying to link in, like, um, incest and stuff. And he's like, since um, 
gay marriage was legalised. I can't remember where he said. I think he said somewhere like Norway. He was like, since gay marriage has been legalised, incest has gone up. And I'm like, what? The two are not related. Like, he was really trying to link all these things together to try and tell everyone else that... No, there's a reason why more people are gay, and that's because we've we're being forced to accept it in this new kind of like PC world. And it's like no, no, that's not how it works. That doesn't just make more gay people. Yeah, well, I think it comes down to two separate but related specious arguments here. Where the first one is like, if you make it acceptable, if you make it okay for people to have sex outside of the context of like a heterosexual marriage for the purpose of you know procreating for bringing children in the world if you don't zealously protect that baseline that idea of this is the only way that this can go down this is the only way that you can do this in a way that is acceptable and respectable then you basically open the floodgates and somehow there's going to be a straight line that you can draw from people start having sex outside of the marriage bedroom. And somehow, if you allow people to veer outside of that tiny little circle of sexual activity, they're going to end up at this hideous Babylon of like incest and bestiality and blah, 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 like all these truly repugnant ways of expressing yourself sexually. And it, of course, that doesn't make any sense. Like, People who want to do that type of thing are going to do it regardless. They don't need the green light from yeah. society. They've never had it and they continue to do their, and they continue to do these things regardless. And then the second argument is, and I think this is perhaps the only intelligible, um, at least on some level, argument that can be put forth in this situation. And it's this whole notion that you need the nuclear family unit of the father and the mother taking care of the children. You need this very specific balance of masculinity and femininity, a father figure and a and a maternal carer to raise children in the right way. And if you don't have that, if this traditional picture of a family breaks down, there's going to be these negative consequences for society as a whole because so far civilization has been built on the backbone of this very constrained form of upbringing. And obviously that doesn't make any sense either because there are so many, you know, lesbian couples, gay couples that are desperate for a child. They want to adopt a child and they want to give it all the care and all the affection and all the support that a heterosexual couple would be able to give it. We now have so many examples of children who have been raised by homosexual parents and who have turned out to be productive, psychologically healthy members of society. I think a point that people are always trying to make is that there's all there's there's now more of something. Um, we see this more now that there's bigger numbers of whatever, whatever. And actually, I think people are just more aware of it, partly because of the internet. We have... We've never had this much access to anything in our lives. And so I feel like that is a part of feeling why there is more of something. And so these people who do hate gay people or are against it, they see it more now. They see it more in the media. They see it more in our TV shows, in our films. They're just more aware of it. Um, 
And that's obviously a point that people were trying to make is that, you know, with this forced acceptance, more people are coming out as gay. Um, And that's a problem because what happens if like everyone's gay and (laughs) the end of society, no traditional, no more procreation. We've hit a dead end. Yeah, yeah that seems and that's really likely. Pro- a problem for a lot of religious people because, you know, especially in the Bible, like you were saying, it is, you know, a man, a woman. And the whole point is to have children. But I think more and more the world is changing. You know, a lot of people, you know, a lot more people now are choosing not to have children. And so, you know... I think some people are really just taking these kind of numbers and figures and the things that they see and they're really just saying, no, there's more bit gay people than ever. There's incest and there's bestiality and we're seeing the breakdown of families and we just got to ban it all. We've got to yeah. just ban it all. And that's not the reason or the answer. Yeah, it's this ridiculous fear that although we've had the traditional family unit for however long humanity has been around, suddenly going to be eradicated in a few years of you know homosexuality being depicted more and more in kind of mainstream cinema and music and literature and whatnot and it is preposterous and you have to call it out as that you know there are these foolish people who have this idea that homosexuality is like a modern phenomenon like now that we have this kind of less religious society this less moralistic society that homosexuality has kind of sprung up like a weed whereas in reality homosexuality has always been a part of humanity it's just being suppressed there's been countless people Mm. who have had to suppress their homosexual proclivities because they knew that it was going to reap such ruinous consequences for them in their societies in their time periods because there's definitely this idea of people saying gay wasn't a thing when I was young or yeah. whatever, like there were no gays. And it's like, well, they were gay people. They just, you know, it, it always comes down to like, it, it's difficult to understand things if you don't know it, yeah. right? But you, what you need to learn is that you, just because you don't understand it, you A, don't have to fear it, and B, doesn't mean that it's bad just because it's not commonplace. Yeah. And so... You know, because we weren't seeing lots of like repre- like homosexual like representation and stuff like that on like TV and in movies and in media, people who were gay were confused and they were scared. They didn't know because every it wasn't just normal to be out. You know, people didn't know what to say or what to do or what it meant for them, and people probably were more kind of like. You know, there was a story by a guy in the thread who was like, when I was growing up, um, if a man acted a certain way, we called him a sissy. Like, you know, and it was just normal to, like, treat men like that and it was a bad thing. And obviously things like that, words like that, they have been kind of used against homosexual people. And so there were lots of reasons for homosexual people not to come out, not to say anything. But it doesn't mean that it wasn't a thing. Being gay is not a new thing, yeah. you know? Um, but people don't see it that way. And so many people have that kind of classic conservative instinct of, I want things to stay the same. Yeah. And they have this mistaken idea that the way things have always been is that 
there weren't gay people. There was just this heterosexual marriage. You have kids in the context of the nuclear family and you continue that generation by generation. And that's how everyone was. So they think that that was the status quo. That was the baseline. And they're trying to preserve that. And I think if they realized that that was all a lie in a way because there were so many gay people who were kept at the margins of society, who were oppressed and who were told that not only what you're doing is wrong, but who you are is wrong. And so they obviously had no reason, no incentive, no protection when it came to coming out and saying, this is who I am and that's okay. Um, and like you said, how many people who have these bigoted inclinations towards homosexuality and homosexual people don't know anyone who is gay, don't even know anyone who knows someone who's gay. They have become insulated in their little enclaves where everyone does the same thing and you all subscribe to the same group think where this is good and this is bad and so yeah i agree that if you've never even been in contact with that way of being with that subculture it is just the classic childish fear of the unknown yeah. it's like well i'm grossed out by gay people having sex well it's like you have no realistic understanding of not only what homosexual sex is, but what homosexual love is, because it's also a form of love. It's a form of partnership. And so you're coming at it with all these misconceptions, with all these fear-mongering projections. Um, yeah, there are definitely people out there that they it's like they see being gay as this other thing that's not anything at all like what they know. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, it is different, of course. But at the same time, you know, with that old cheesy line of like, love is love, like, you know, some people say, well, I didn't, I didn't really know what gay was until I met a friend who was gay. And actually, it turns out he's just completely normal or whatever. And I'm like, well, that's incredibly insulting. But also, <laughs> I wish people could just see. Well, duh. Yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, this guy's just the same as me, but he loves a man instead of a woman. It's like, yeah, you think. Yeah, exactly. Wasn't that obvious to you? I don't understand how it can be, like, some people saying, well, it's just gross. I just find it so gross yeah. and disgusting, which, of course, is horrendous to see. Um, but it's like, you know you are a man, right? And yeah. this is just another man loving a man. So I don't understand what crushes you out so much. Like, it's very, very alien to me. Obviously, the thread went in lots of different ways. You know, some pe some people were like... LGB, I'm fine with. T, I really don't understand because if you if you think you were born in a different body, then you've got screws loose. And he went all the way kind of like from that up until like LGB, I find gross and disgusting and I don't understand. T, like I'm totally for you and like with you. And like if you really feel like you identify as some like as a woman, if you were born in a man's body or whatever, then I'm totally, like, with you and for you, and I will protest, you know. It was very strange, the kind of d distinctions people were making. And then there was kind of, like, an overwhelming number of people who were, like, but the Q part, where people kind of don't know what they are, and they, they're, like, fluid, like, they're, like, gender fluid and they're sex fluid, and they, you know, they have all these, like quote-unquote weird names for things like no you're not a special snowflake just fucking give it up and I found that kind of 
that was that's probably the most like the most scary for some people when someone says they don't know what they are they don't know who they are they don't know who they love um and that's probably like i can see why that would be scary for some people if they already come from a place of like i'm not really down with the gays do you know what i mean yeah and it goes back to that whole idea of somehow your category has been threatened like i'm a heterosexual male and so if there's not only homosexual but all these other strange nebulous kind of exotic categories of sexuality then it somehow downgrades the importance or the primacy of classic heterosexuality it's no longer just heterosexual and then this thing gets kind of combating homosexuality there's now this wide spectrum where i'm just one of many i'm not the dominant force anymore i'm not the only game in town and somehow they feel like it's not okay to let that kind of progression happen there needs to be a protection of this dominant sphere of sexuality against a more wide-ranging perspective on how humans can interact on a sexual basis it really confuses me and like angers me and just bewilders me like when people have such strange opinions and like ideas about how like the world should be you know talking about this kind of quote-unquote traditional family and stuff um when you're someone who doesn't think like that like especially when you come from a place of kind of not thinking anywhere near that you know people are people and everyone should be equal and I don't understand why you have to hate one group of people it's very odd to see and even when these people were trying to they're trying to say no this is separate from my religion or because I haven't kind of quoted the bible or whatever um that they have kind of grown up that way because of their environment and a big part of that was because of religion um and that they can't see how different they may have turned out if they didn't have religion or they didn't live in that area or you know what i mean they didn't have those influences or they don't realize that if they had grown up in a society where homosexuality was just completely pervasive and completely accepted and celebrated they would have a completely diametrically opposite standpoint than they do now all these irrational hatreds and fears would be dissolved they don't realize that it's all contextual Mm. it's all based on what surrounded you what ideas enveloped you as you were growing up and caused you to form these irrational prejudices it really just proves to me that this kind of hate and um dislike for people is taught because I didn't have a religious... Well, I I didn't have a religious upbringing, though I did go to a school where we had to go to church. But it wasn't kind of hammered into you. We just had to pray now and then. It wasn't, you know... It was at gunpoint, though, right? (laughs) But my family wasn't religious, and my friends weren't religious, and even though I grew up where there wasn't, like, a lot of out gay people... When I first met, my, had my first gay experience or met the first person I knew was gay, my automatic response was not hate or fear or anything because I hadn't been taught either way. So my experiences up until then had kind of like informed me that 
this is just another person. Yeah. They just do different things to me or they do different things to the majority of the people that I already know or whatever. Whereas if I had been brought up in a religious environment or just an environment where my parents didn't like gay people or um, my family didn't like gay people, it just proves more and more to me that this kind of thing is taught whether it's through religion or just because you're a hateful bastard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that revulsion is taught. If you are brought up in this milieu of ideas where it's like somehow being gay is like aberrant, it's somehow deviant, it's like you're doing something wrongful in this like hedonistic way where it's like I don't care about doing the right thing, I just want to seek these kind of worldly pleasures then you do think about the idea of two people having homosexual sex as this kind of inexplicable, like, unjustifiable thing because you are heterosexual. And I think there are a lot of kind of wannabe manly men who have this kind of unhealthy form of masculinity where it's like they see the idea of two men having sex as threatening they think about themselves being in that situation and they think about how much they would dislike it um and then they misdirect that emotion at thinking about having to do something they don't want to do towards being like well nobody should do this because it's wrong and it's unhealthy and it's disgusting or whatever whereas the healthy mental perspective would be to say i don't want to do this no one's forcing me to do this other people can do whatever the hell they want and i'll do whatever the hell i want it's fine to even be completely indifferent towards gay people but as long as you can peacefully coexist and you can have that kind of baseline of tolerance of i'm going to go my way in life and you're going to go your way in life but i'm not going to try and constrain you i'm not going to try and oppress you i'm not going to try and make you follow the path that i think is the only right way and then of course there's this gross double standard where it's like how many of these guys are like you know they think about the idea of two men having sex and they're like deeply disgusted like they feel that repulsion like deep in their bones but then of course they watch lesbian porn and they think it's like the hottest thing ever yeah there are definitely different levels of hate and different reasons for hating right it's like okay it's like when oftentimes if you're being bullied people will say well they're only bullying you because really they're insecure about something or they're jealous of you or whatever it is and that's why they bully you you know there's obviously a a portion of people who who don't like gay people because they are do have similar feelings themselves and they rail against that for whatever reason often because they're religious or they're expected to be heterosexual right and so there are obviously different levels of this you know that whole kind of like i deeply deeply fucking hate gay people it makes me sick and then they're like violent against gay people but then they do kind of like maybe have fantasies and they do watch lesbian porn and you know That's a whole different level, I think, that we're talking about. To go back to what you were saying in terms of the way you were brought up, I do think there are kind of like religious people um, wherein religion isn't their whole life. And so 
a person can kind of grow up in that environment and form their own healthy views on things and they don't automatically hate things that are different. Um, I think it's usually when religion really has become your whole life and, you know, as soon as you do something that's wrong, you're it's a sin and, you know, you're, you're not going to go to heaven and, you know, when things get crazy serious like that where you have to answer to God in every single way, I think that's when it kind of becomes this scary thing that you can't kind of turn away from because it's everywhere. Um, and I think that's when it's probably hardest to form your own views and thoughts on things um, because it would go against everything you know and everyone you know. And that is scary, I, I can imagine. And yeah, so obviously I also wanted to touch on you know, a lot of people talking about trans people within the thread ended up talking about the whole bathroom situation. Um, and there were some people that were saying that they think that bathrooms should be unisex anyway, all the way up until, you know, the horrible, gross kind of comments that you would expect. You know, if I see a man wearing, you know, dressed as a woman, then blah, blah, blah. If, or if he's got the same junk as me, then he's a man and just hurried kind of things like that. But I just wanted to kind of talk about that. Yeah. The whole bathroom debate has been pretty fascinating, um, mostly because there's been such dishonesty and disingenuousness from the side of no transgender people shouldn't be allowed to use the bathroom that aligns with their chosen gender. Um because they put forth this idea of like, you know, now a man with a wig can sneak into the girl's bathroom and do whatever he wants to your daughter. You know, it's like this classic transparent kind of crude fear mongering, which is so easy to just completely refute. Because first of all, if there's a sexual predator who's going to sneak into a bathroom, he's not going to wait until there's some meager possible loophole in the law to do it what he's doing is still deeply illegal it still carries huge criminal penalties so it makes no sense to be like well now the floodgates are open because it's not illegal for him to be in the girl's bathroom yeah. anymore that just doesn't make any sense um and so yeah it's just a complete red herring to try and get people to act irrationally out of fear and out of these like crazy hypothetical scenarios um, instead of thinking like there is this whole class of people who have it hard enough already in terms of society isn't accepting of trans identities. It isn't accepted. It isn't accepting of the idea at a fundamental level. And so they do have to live in this kind of gray area of hiding who they are. Um, and so it seems like the bare minimum we can do is make sure that they can use the bathroom that aligns with their gender identity and peace and it really comes at no cost because using the public bathroom should be such a private quick interaction so that you're not really paying attention to the people that are around you at the urinal or outside the stalls or at the taps and so it doesn't matter who's in there with you you're all just trying to take care of your business and go on with your day and so the question is why do people care so much and the reason why they care ultimately i think is not because of these ridiculous nightmarish scenarios of serial killers masquerading as women and sneaking into the girls bathroom they care because they fundamentally disagree 
with the idea of someone being transgendered. They want to try and stamp that out. They want to try and suppress that. They want to do everything they can to avoid normalizing that on a societal level. I agree with you. It is definitely really just because they disagree with being transgendered. Because who does care? When you're in the toilet, you're not staring at everyone who's in there wondering who they are and what they are and, you know, whether they should be dressed like that or not. You're doing something that's very kind of like private and just like, I want to do this. I'm in public, so I have to do it in a public place. And I just want to kind of get out of here. You know, they're not going to be standing in there waiting to kind of greet you and then have a conversation about it. You know, they're not, if you take your children in there, they're not going to just be like staring at your children, kind of like influencing them trying to turn them transgender (laughs) whilst you're here can i talk to you about gender politics yeah like that's not how it's going to be like chances are you've been in the bathroom more than once with someone yeah that's the hilarious thing it's like these people are like i can't possibly share a bathroom with a transgendered individual and yet they've probably done that countless times in every part of their life already yeah and to tie it back into something you were saying earlier it's so fascinating that there are these kind of outliers these people who are so strongly against homosexuality who think that it's wrong who think that it should be discouraged and kind of eradicated from society for the greater good but then they turn around and seemingly paradoxically they're fine with transgendered people and it's this kind of weird way that they've backdoored it into their own existing orthodox worldview where if a man transitions into a woman And then as that woman goes on to have heterosexual relationships with men, it's almost like the existing traditional gender norms have been maintained. Women are still going out with men and men are still going out with women. And so it's like they found this way to square it with their preferred worldview, with the way that they hope that the world is. Instead of accepting the reality of it, they've kind of made the square peg go into the round hole and they've smoothed everything out so that they can think to themselves well everything is basically still the same i'll just kind of forget that these people are transgendered and just look at the fact that that it kind of resembles how things were before i agree and i definitely feel like i can see why that's something they can kind of get behind though it doesn't really make any sense when you look at the whole thing it's still very confusing as like an outside person looking, being like, I don't, Yeah. if you could see how you've kind of confused the situation in your mind. Um, instead of engaging, instead of engage, <laughs> yeah, instead of engage, <laughs> engaging. There's no N. Okay. <laughs> yeah, instead of engaging, <laughs> was that still not right? <laughs> engaging gay yeah yeah instead of engaging (laughs) 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 yeah instead of resorting to this (laughs) this is a blooper for sure this is the bloopiest of bloops you're gonna keep this Yeah, instead of resorting to this cognitive dissonance of trying to make things seem like the way they were before, instead of jumping through all these hoops, you'd think that at some point they'd realize 
it was so much easier from a mental standpoint and from an ethical standpoint to just be like live and let live like these people are doing something that i don't agree with something that i wouldn't do myself but that's fine yeah you'd think they just see the ease of being an open respectful tolerant person instead of trying to desperately hold on to these antiquated worldviews where you're trying to force everyone to conform to the way things were from a moral standpoint like a hundred years ago you're so right because it really is just easy liking everyone going with it and like being accepting people for who they are exactly because you just have to sit back and live your life yeah like you know but instead of railing against every single fucking thing that you don't like which is just so much hard work and so much effort and causes so much drama and pain and hurt and horribleness if you could just kind of you know love everyone yeah (laughs) i think that's a good closing point a happy note to end that difficult segment on yep so yeah should we move on to the next topic what have you got so my next article is kind of like an opinion piece kind of like a blog post kind of like a autobiographical excerpt it's kind of a strange mix of several different things it's a piece on the new york times entitled what's the use of regret where this writer basically details some experiences he's had with trying to decide whether it's worthwhile to hold on to his regrets and his remorse and all these painful memories of times when he did stupid or hurtful things and whether it's needful to have this masochistic approach of I'm going to constantly dwell on these things even though it does no good and it just is painful emotionally and psychologically Um, and he kind of throws in a few historical philosophical approaches to show how the thinking about this has kind of evolved Um, and I just kind of find it fascinating this idea of should we cling on to these painful regrets does it do any good or is it just this ritual of self-flagellating where it's almost like a self-harm thing it's like the pain brings us pleasure in in a way because you're kind of punishing yourself over and over again instead of just moving past it or making amends or doing something constructive. And so, yeah, I just wanted to get your perspective on that. There are so many layers to this. Because I feel like, first of all, you know, people always want to be like, no regrets. Like they YOLO. Want, yeah, they want to say that they have no regrets. That they they did something and whether it turned out well or not, it's kind of formed them as a person and it's helped them move on to the next thing because maybe if they do regret it, they won't do a similar thing again, etc., etc. Um, But then there are like real, real, like life, real life, horrible things that can happen, which you kind of want to regret because why would you want to put yourself through that pain if you had the choice to kind of go back and do it again? Um. But it has happened and you can't change it. And so why would you kind of sit around regretting it? What does that do? What does sitting around saying, oh, I regret that, I really wish that hadn't happened. What does that do? I mean, does it really make you make new different decisions? I mean, I hope so, but I think it depends on the level of regret. Yeah. 
I think. Do you just kind of like, sorry, do you just kind of like regret, you know, spending that money when you shouldn't have and it led to a bad decision? Or do you regret something that changed your life for like 10 years or whatever? Like those are different levels of regrets, I feel like. I think it all comes down to proportionality and acknowledging that there are diminishing returns here. I think when you make a bad decision and you recognize it to be so, whether it's immediately after, whether it's a month down the line, whether it's five years down the line, I think it is appropriate to have a period of painful regret where you look back and you feel sorrow and remorse for what you did and you think about why it was the wrong thing to do and how to not make the same mistakes in future. I think you kind of owe it to yourself as a person who wishes to improve as a moral entity to take that time and to reflect on something, even though it is hard, even though it does hurt. Um, And then I think that has a useful effect in perpetuity, where you always have this kind of blip on your radar of, oh yeah, I remember not only did I do this horrible thing, but then it made me feel horrible afterwards when I recognized it. And I think that does help you going onwards. The problem comes when you allow that regret to take over and to outstay its welcome. At a certain point, I think you are just bringing up painful memories to bring up painful memories. I think it will have outlived its usefulness and you need to be able to recognize that and say, I've gotten all I can from this bad experience. I've learned all I can. Now it's really just a case of going forward and trying to show through my actions that I do repent, that I do atone for my mistakes with constructive, benevolent choices in the future. I think if people are happy or they're relatively happy um, now, it's difficult for them to regret things because they want to believe in that kind of but all my choices led me to yeah. here. They led me to you. And if I didn't make those choices, maybe I wouldn't have met you or maybe I'd be somewhere else now. Um, and so I think it's difficult for people to truly regret things and wish they really had done something different because the outcome <clears throat> really might be something else, something that you don't want. And now you might not be happy in that alternate universe. But then you got to think, well, I wasn't happy then. So it's like... I don't know, it's something, especially when you know you can't change it. It's like, I used to say, I don't really have any regrets because I do feel like most of the things I did kind of formed me as a person. It's like experience, when people say, you know, there's nothing better than experience, whether it's a good experience or a bad experience for a lot of people. Um, because those are the things where you really learn. You you gain information because you really, really did go through something. Um, and to regret that is difficult because you really might be a different person. Um, and obviously, if it's something that you can't change, it's like, well, there's no point regretting it. But you know somewhere deep inside, you still have those moments of like, I really wish I hadn't done that or I really wish so-and-so didn't have the chance to do that to me because I put myself in that situation and it's like well it hurts I think it depends on what you're regretting or what you're contemplating regretting or what you're contemplating let go of because if it still hurts you now if you have some kind of like trauma because of it it's 
difficult to let go of because those are like your wounds, your battle scars. It's like I have them and even though I don't want to ever think about it again and I don't want to put myself back in that place, I know I have this scar and it is visible to me every day. And sometimes I do want to talk about it and sometimes I do want to kind of go over it again in my head and realise how I got into that situation or why I got into that situation and whether it meant I could actually have a happy life later on. Maybe I had to go through those things in order to be the person that I am now, to be in the situation that I am now, you know? Yeah, I think you have to draw a line between things that you're just not going to be able to let go they were so momentous in your life and they had such a huge effect on you that to a certain extent they're always going to be with you because they were such milestones in your progression as a person whether for good or for ill and i think in a way the best you can hope for is to just almost become neutral towards them where you can't get away from every day kind of reflecting on it even if it's just for a few seconds here and there. But you maybe can get to the point where you just look at it kind of dispassionately, where you're like, I'm so far away from it now. I'm so removed from it emotionally and physically um, that I can just look back and be like, that was an event that happened and it caused this, this and that. And I've learned this, this and that from it. And that's okay. I think all these platitudes about, you know, everything is a useful stepping stone whether or not it seems at the time are kind of bogus there are some things that really are just wholly bad wholly negative wholly detrimental and i think if you try and take the time to try and turn them around in your mind and reconstitute them into some kind of useful beneficial thing i think you are just going to encounter more pangs of frustration and regret because you're trying to make something into something that it never was and that it never can be at a certain point you just have to accept that the past is the past it's already been written and the tally of bad things and the tally of good things that you've done and that have happened to you are what they are and the only thing you can control going forward is the future and you can learn from those mistakes and those catastrophes of the past but you can't allow them to trap you in this bubble of you're constantly trying to change your own past. You, The only thing that you need to be focused on is making better choices going forward. I think you're right to some extent, but I think it depends on what it does to you. What that those sets of decisions or what that regret or what happened or what you did does to you. Like, if something you did traumatised you and maybe you're depressed now or maybe you're anxious because of it maybe you went through a certain amount of things that you want to regret because now you have you have anxiety and you don't like going out or you get kind of like awkward or uncomfortable about things um what if all these decisions and all these things you did and the things that happened to you have put you into a different state do you know what i mean you know, some people have regrets and go through bad things and they, they are able to take all of that fuel and they are able to let it kind of be a machine that kind of like pushes you forward and gives you all this extra energy and all these kind of like, you know, everyday counts kind of situation. And then there's the other other kind of regret and and trauma and bad decisions and all this stuff that goes together that kind of like 
makes you see the world differently, you know? It makes you more sensitive to things. It it means that you have days where you can't do anything but think about it. You can't move forward. You can't, you know, because there are some things that you do or that happen to you that you can't get past, you know. It isn't always just about that's happened now, you need to kind of move on. It is the past is the past and you can't change it. But we're always going to have that thing inside us of what if. And I think that is just something that is kind of built into us. And so it's all about whether you're able to do that one thing of moving forward or that other thing of always having one foot stuck in the past because of how it's affected you and how it continues to affect you going forward. The question is, how much do you need to let it torture you going onwards? And maybe on a more meta level, how much can you control how much it tortures you going forward? How much of it is voluntary and how much of it is just kind of the brute facts of the situation? This is just inevitable. This is just kind of part of my psyche going onwards. I think you have to try and figure out how much you have to endure and how much you're making yourself endure on top of that. Um, I definitely see what you're saying. I think I come at it from a perspective of when I do look at the kind of boneheaded moves I've made in the past and the ways that I've hurt people unnecessarily and the ways that I've kind of set myself back in different ways, all these varied mistakes. It's almost like when I dwell on those memories, it doesn't have the effect it once did because even going back a few years, when I look at that period, I really do see a different person it doesn't feel like me anymore. I know in a strict kind of temporal continuity sense, it is still me. I am still Theseus's ship. But when I look back, it seems like someone else who I'm judging. It seems like someone else's decisions who I'm sitting here and pronouncing either that was wise or that was foolish, that was benevolent or that was detrimental to you and the people around you. And so... I think to a certain extent, I'm able to distance myself and just look at it in a kind of, well, that guy was stupid. I don't want to be like him anymore instead of being like I was stupid in the past. And so that makes me a stupid person. And I think that is kind of useful in a way to look at yourself as a progression of different people and to think I don't want to be like that previous person anymore. And so I'm really going to try and make better decisions. I'm going to try and steer my life in a different direction and to achieve different results with my behavior i think some people never change that can be true you know when people say that well people don't change well but i think there are also people that can completely change i know that i feel like i have lived like three different lives yeah. like i'm in my third life right now um <clears throat> because i have almost been three different people because there have been massive things that I have done or that I've, that I've kind of been a part of that have formed that life. And then I moved on and I was almost completely different. Always maintaining myself throughout, but the way you are and the way you kind of do things changes. Um, and I think you're right. You have to kind of discover whether there is a line of I'm doing this to myself or this is due, the effects of what's happened, it 
it's, it's going to stay con- with you. Yeah. So you have to find the line if there is one. And if there is one, then obviously it would be good and healthy to quit it, quit punishing yourself. Yeah. Um, I don't think there is always a line, though. I think certain things can have this kind of rocking effect um, that does you, that you carry with you in every single step of your life. And sometimes it stops you from doing things and sometimes it really helps you to do things. And and so I don't think it's as easy to just be like, you know, well, I'm not going to let that affect me anymore because you don't always have control. You know, there's a reason why when you're depressed, a lot of people always want to talk about your past because it's the idea that things have happened in your past you've been traumatized in some way that you haven't dealt with yet and you have to deal with it in order to move forward and if you end up having lots and lots and lots of regrets you might then have been traumatized 10 different times you've never dealt with it and your whole idea of just yeah let's just put this in the past and move on but you're depressed and you don't know why and that's because you haven't dealt with things and and or it's because you do have a lot of regrets and you don't know how to deal with the fact that you have a lot of regrets and you wish things had gone differently. Yeah, I definitely see how you can kind of misappropriate that rhetoric of, well, you should just move on. You shouldn't engage in this kind of self-indulgent masochism of constantly forcing yourself to review every tiny misdeed and see it's every nuanced negative consequence going down the line. And to use that standpoint basically as a shield to stop yourself from really doing the due diligence of reviewing the ways that you've messed up and taking responsibility for that and moving forward. Um, So yeah, I definitely do see that. I just think that, I think maybe you just have to take your best guess at it because you never really know yourself fully. You never know what kind of tricks of self-preservation your mind is trying to pull the ways that your subconscious is trying to shield you from difficult memories from memories that require passing through your kind of ethical sensibilities now but that is going to be a painful process um i think i just kind of instinctually err on the side of don't be too hard on yourself now um when I look back at most of the big mistakes I've made, they were when I was a teenager, when I was a kid. And I'm now kind of inclined to basically be more lenient and to say, well, I wasn't a fully grown person. I wasn't an adult yet. I didn't have that full grasp of the consequences of my actions and the way to approach things in the best way. So it's like I almost want to look back in a kind of, it's okay that you did this. You were just, you know, a dumb kid learning the world. Another thing is as well is that you can't always see that what you're doing will be a regret, obviously, because you wouldn't be doing it. Um, Sometimes you can't really see that it's a regret if it's a regret until years later. Because oftentimes when you're in a situation, you're blinded by so many things. Um, And there's all, we also, I think, all have like this stubbornness it's like you don't ever want to be told that you're doing something wrong and so you know there's lots of reasons to kind of go ahead with that bad decision whatever it might be yeah i see what you're saying i think to a certain extent you have to account for your own fallibility of appraisal in that 
you are going to look back at some decisions that don't really warrant regret. Decisions that to you seemed like the wrong choice to make at the time. But if you're able to take some kind of omniscient view of all the possible outcomes of that decision point, maybe you would see that you didn't make such a bad decision. Maybe you would see that there was no possible good outcome and it was really just a doomed choice between several different varyingly bad choices. And so if you're able to see things more clearly, you might come at it from the perspective of, yes, what I did doesn't seem great now, but maybe I was in a situation where there was no way to handle this perfectly. There was no way to completely avoid any kind of negative fallout. I think it's always important to make sure you're communicating to everyone properly. Like, I think as you move through life, if you are able to say, I want to do this, I don't want to do this, I feel weird about this, I feel like this might not be the right decision. And then once you've made the decision, then talking about how it makes you feel. Like, I I feel like if you find a way to constantly kind of talk about what's going on, things won't seem as bad. And obviously we're talking about on like a mid-level, there are always going to be some things that are really bad. But if we're just talking about, you know, these everyday kind of regrets or... I think, honestly, if you just kind of find a way to talk it through and you talk it through while it's happening and after it's happened, these things don't won't tend to build up so much in your mind as these weird kind of like deep things that, that you know, when like things build up in your mind as like this really massive thing and then when you talk it out with someone, it's really not as big as you thought it was. So I feel like if if we all just kind of communicated a little bit more or a little bit better, um, and some people already do, obviously, then I feel like that would really help, honestly. Yeah, I think there are a lot of people who have regrets that they don't need to hold as regrets. They have mistakes where they feel like, man, I really you know, hurt this person or I really screwed them over in some way. And yet if they had talked to that person at length and in a very open and honest way they would have realized that they didn't affect the person in the way that they thought they did. Yeah. And so they don't need to look back at it as such a negative thing. Um, but I, like I said, I think people instinctually kind of veer towards appraising their own actions in the most negative, damning light possible. And I think then that leads to almost this paralysis in the present moment where when you are presented with these decision points especially if it is a really important choice that could have momentous consequences down the line. I think you can whip yourself up into this frenzy of worry where it's like, well, I don't want to make a choice that I'm going to regret later because that's such a heavy psychological burden to bear going on. So you almost get to this point where you don't want to make any decision. You'd rather abstain, even if that brings about negative consequences by itself than to have the courage to commit to a particular course of action and to trust that you've made the right decision even though you do run the risk of having chosen poorly i think often as well people want to please the people around them and so there's often a lot of decisions that get made that that people don't really want to make and they don't realize until afterwards that no I really really didn't want to do it and actually the outcome wasn't worth me kind of lying about it and then 
making a decision I didn't want to make and having to live with this regret and so I feel like I wish almost like people would be willing to disappoint people a little bit more in order to kind of live a better life because I do feel like there are you know there are some people that their whole life is kind of being a people pleaser they will do whatever is asked of them even when they don't want to but then then they themselves end up having a really shitty life because of it you know they're not fulfilled because they're pleasing everyone like the like they feel like they should be and so I feel like maybe we shouldn't do that as much because I mean we talked about this briefly in another podcast when we were talking about how um doing things for yourself isn't necessarily selfish you know you have to take care of yourself um and you know usually if you're taking care of yourself you can take care of other people better and so if we all kind of did that a little bit more then everyone would be winning yeah i think also you have to take account of the antagonism between intentions and consequences in philosophy there is this idea of consequentialism where you judge actions solely based on the consequences they bring about instead of focusing on what did this person want to achieve? What was their intention when they made this decision? And this is a debate that has been raging in the philosophy of ethics for centuries and for good reason, because it is such an important distinction if you choose to make it. Because if you do, you can then say to yourself, let me divide my regrets into different categories. Don't I have a large portion of regrets where I tried to make the right decision at the time. And so aren't I, in retrospect, kind of blameless in that I tried to do the right thing, but fate was just uncooperative. And I shouldn't now be too hard on myself because I wasn't able to perfectly foresee all those unforeseeable consequences of my actions. I think there are kind of those people that make decisions and don't think about the consequences. That's how they live their lives. They make decisions based on what's best for them or their immediate people, like their friends and family. And then there are people that kind of only make decisions based on the consequences. If I make this decision, what will it mean for such and such? What will directly happen after I've made this decision? And so they then make the decision based on those consequences. And I think the world is made up in large part of those two types of people. Yeah, I definitely don't want to absolve poor decision making based on the idea that if you are just this kind of hapless fool who is always well-meaning is always well-intentioned but just kind of blunders into making these ruinous choices then you should be completely free of blame i definitely recognize that you have to sometimes say it doesn't matter what your intention was it was your responsibility to have thought this through such that you realize that there were these undesirable consequences lurking behind certain decisions you could make and it was up to you to make the right decision to bring about the best possible outcome i just think it's kind of an unresolvable friction where we are imperfect infallible creatures we don't have a flawless grasp on rationality and logic we do go into things and oftentimes do the best that we can or the best we think can be done in a certain situation and yeah, I think I'm just generally inclined to take the humanist view of you can't be too hard on yourselves for not being these 
emotionless machines that perfectly calculate the odds of every different mistake. Because there's so many things that you think you know what's going to happen when you make a decision and then it doesn't happen and you're like, yeah, but I didn't know this was going to happen and now my whole world has fallen apart because you didn't know this one thing was going to happen. And I think ultimately that's all we can do. We can try to do our best, but we can't control things. And I think that's what we need to learn to live with. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I want to say some things. Two things. We're recording a podcast that people listen to. I just had a moment there where I was like, my mind was blown. And second, I can't wait till we've done so that I can jump on you and have cuddles and giggle with you because I love you. Aftercare for a podcast. Yes. Yes, I think that was a good, that was a nice little point to end on. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was a hearty discussion. We always try and end things like that on a kind of optimistic yeah happy note which i think says a lot about how fragile we are as emotional <laughs> beings but Perhaps. yeah things about to get even rockier i'm afraid because the Jeez. final topic is based on a news story i saw this on the guardian with the title 14 year old girl who died of cancer wins right to be cryogenically frozen wow <laughs> It's a big one. Yeah. I think that's actually a misnomer in the title, um, in that I think the proper term is cryonically frozen. I actually looked this up because I would have instinctually said cryogenic, but I think the proper term for freezing a human cadaver with the hopes that it can be resuscitated later is cryonically frozen, the field of cryonics. I just thought that was an interesting distinction, and I guess The Guardian didn't do their proper research yeah um yeah i'm calling them out how about that (laughs) and so yeah i just wanted to talk about two things the first is this was such an interesting predicament in that this young girl who knew that she was going to die wanted very strongly to be chronically frozen after her death because it gave her some hope it gave her some solace And then there was this whole protracted legal dispute she had to go through in order to basically be awarded the right to determine what happens to her body after her death. Um, So I wanted to talk to you about whether you think children should be able to make those choices for themselves. And then also more generally talk about how you feel about, even in the abstract, the idea of freezing yourself after death with the hope of coming back to life in some future era i feel like that's always been like the dream like when i die i want it to be i want it to be a thing that you can be frozen and then brought back to life or whatever um yeah i think this was what the renowned scientist slash rock group evanescence penned a song about if i'm not mistaken (laughs) you know the one don't pretend that you don't oh i know it wake me up wake me up you're supposed to come in and do the backing I feel like my brain has frozen. Let's start that again. (laughs) Wake me up inside, save me. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that song was about chronic preservation, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Remember that rap verse? Oh, yeah. That was odd. I do love that song, though. Yeah, so I feel like this is something that we've obviously always wanted to be a thing. It's like one of those fantasies that you think about. Um, But, I mean, even with the fact that she won this case... 
she's not going to be, presumably he's not going to be able to be woken up because there's probably something that they would have had to do to her before she died in order to be able to wake her up later. Well, I think that, in a sense, is a moot point. I don't remember the article mentioning whether they did perform the necessary steps upon death so that she could be preserved because she had to be shipped to the US to be taken into a commercial cryonics facility and to be frozen there. I think this is all a moot point in that I'm pretty sure from the brief research that I did into it that we don't yet have the capabilities of perfectly preserving the human brain. It's such a complex system of biological machinery that we don't have a way to preserve that over tens or hundreds or thousands of years yet so i think it then comes down to is it worth spending all this money and time and waging this legal battle to give this little girl a false hope of ultimate survival is it more important that she died with this consolation that maybe I can be revived later. Is it more important that that be preserved than that she be given the hard, cold facts of the situation? No, I I feel like she should have been given that. She She should be allowed to have that kind of hope or that kind of like one wish or one dream that that she wants to have kind of going into death. Because first of all, death is like, Death from an out... I've never been on the verge of death. So I don't actually know what it's like to know you're going to die soon. So I can only say this from an outside perspective. Death, even from an outside perspective of knowing someone you know is going to die or someone you know is sick and it's terminal. Like, that's scary. Trying to comprehend death, that someone is going to die and they're not going to be there anymore you can't ever communicate with them again, is really scary and hard to understand. Even though we all know what death is and, like, we know that we're all going to die, when it actually happens to someone close to you, it's it becomes this really confusing, like, horrible thing that you have to kind of comprehend. And so I can't imagine what it feels like to know you were going to die, especially at such a young age. She hasn't had the chance to do like almost anything yet. She was only 14. And so her way of trying to comprehend it, to cope with it, to kind of move through the days before she died is to say, no, I want this hope. I want this thing that might actually really be a real thing in the future and I want it for myself. And I think, yes, people should be allowed to have that, especially children, because if, as adults, with all the information and experience that we have, if it's hard for us, imagine how hard it is for them. Yeah, I definitely tend to err on that side of empathy as well, where... The idea that someone would know a definite end point of like, I'm going to die within the next six months, the next year. It is such a horrifying thing to have to deal with that I think my instinctual reaction is just like unlimited empathy, unlimited pity. Like just, I want them to have whatever they want to make this easier for them, to make this more endurable. Because it is the type of thing where it is just 
an unimaginable torment to go through, to know that you're going to die in the near future and to know it with relative certainty. It is the type of thing where, to a certain extent, it's worse than anything else that you can imagine to become so deeply and inescapably aware of your own mortality and your own approaching expiration. I just can't imagine it. And I'm filled with like such a profound sorrow that anyone has to go through that. And yet, of course, we all have to go through it, which Mm -hmm. is the really insane paradoxical thing about it. And so to think about a little girl having to go through that and then having to fight to have this one small consoling hope of ultimate survival after death is just, it is kind of bewildering. My approach would just be like, if they are in a situation where they can afford to have this expensive procedure performed and to give this child who is in such a difficult, such a painful, such a such a tragic situation, some last flicker of hope, which will hopefully make things easier to swallow for her, even if, even by some tiny infinitesimal amount. I think it's a worthwhile trade-off, honestly. Like, to spend, I think the article said it was about 60000 I don't know whether that was pounds or dollars, but either way, it's a very considerable amount of money for most people. But I think if you were the parent of a child who was soon going to die of cancer and who had to go through this horrible experience of fighting cancer and then finally reaching this point of no return where they know that they are on death's door i think even spending that large amount of money for something that is probably not going to work in the way that you'd hope but which will give this child some kind of benefit psychologically i think it is well worth it and i think it's a right that should be protected that you're able to decide what to do with your body, both in life and in death. I think so too. <clears throat> there are always going to be people that think children don't have the rights to kind of decide anything because they're children they don't know yet. Yeah. But it's almost like when it, when people say things like that, they forget that they were children once and that actually they often had a better grasp on things than adults realise or can remember. Um The fact is, whether she can fully understand certain things, she knows she has cancer. She knows she's going to die without living the life she wanted to live. And that's all you really need to know. I mean, as long as you know that and you, you she had this plan of like, well, I hope that one day I can come back or I want to do this in the hopes of this thing being real one day. Like, I don't know why you would want to deny a person that. Like, what is cut off inside of you that you can't kind of grasp that? Because if it was you and you had that kind of hope or you wanted your body to be treated a certain way when you were dead, um, I don't know why you wouldn't want to give that. Yeah, and from an external perspective it's like even if you think that chronics is a doomed venture and it's never going to produce the results that its advocates and its participants expect it to it's like who cares like what's the difference between a dead person being put in a box in the ground and being put in a fridge in some private facility Mm. like there is no real difference if you really think that they both amount to the same thing and yet the one alternative being chronically frozen can give 
dying people some solace it can give them it can give them however misguidedly some hope some sustaining belief that death is not really the end for them because if we want to get down to like real kind of like basics of like well she has to be maintained because she's in this well so do like graveyards and things like there's a process for all of these things um like you said the thing that she wanted is just giving everyone maybe a little extra hope or a different kind of feeling about knowing that she's going to die at such a young age yeah i think just from a pragmatic standpoint it doesn't really make sense to say this is what has to happen to a dead person it's like it doesn't matter anymore mm. like you shouldn't allow yourself to be buried in this bureaucratic thinking of well this is the way that society says that a dead body has to be disposed of it's like a person should be able to make that choice for themselves and the people around them and society at large should respect that choice and i think you've got to be pretty goddamn psychotically cold-hearted to say to a dying girl that she can't pursue this chance at immortality whether or not you think that's a fiction or not because it's like impractical because it's costly you're basically saying don't you realize how much money this is going to cost can't you just die like everyone else i mean it's just it's insane we do often get caught up in the the way things are and the way we think things are meant to be like you said and like earlier with this whole idea of like a traditional family it's like no people can have different ways of wanting to live and wanting to die and I don't understand this weird kind of like no that's not how it's supposed to be like can you like can you imagine how different it would be if all of a sudden they knew they could bring you back like everyone would be chronically frozen exactly just because something isn't quote unquote normal doesn't mean we have to constantly rail against it yeah i mean personally would you want to be chronically frozen that i think is the question that i want to get at yes okay even though right now it seems like the science strongly suggests that we can't preserve a brain in the way that we'd need to so that you can be awoken and resume the same personhood that you have right now Yes, and I'll tell you why. There are a few reasons. One of the reasons is I don't want to be cremated and I don't want to be buried. I feel like neither of those options seems like a good option to me. And obviously a part of not wanting to be either of those things is this kind of strange, irrational fear that you might somehow still be alive. You know, like there's that whole you know you might still be alive but you're buried in a box or you might still be alive and then they set you on fire like who knows there's those strange kind of irrational things that come into play but also i don't really want to i just don't want to be either of those things and it seems like those are the only two options and i've said to you loads of times jokingly like i want to be frozen that's kind of like what i want and I've never really said I want to be frozen so I can be brought back to life, even though that is part of the reason. I just don't really see any other way to kind of put to rest those fears. And I also don't want to kind of like dash all hopes of being brought back somehow. So 
that kind of just sits right with me, to be yeah. honest. And I think if I did know I was going to die that, and I did have the resources, I would probably do the same as that girl. I would want to be frozen. Yeah, I think I feel the same way as you, where obviously I haven't looked into it into any great detail, but just on an abstract level, I would probably want to pursue any chance, however slight, of coming back from the dead. And not as like, you know, a brain-eating zombie, <laughs> but as I actually was. Um, but then I'm kind of conflicted because... I think there is something healthy and beneficial about people getting to the stage of emotional maturity where they just accept that death is a part of life. Like, I wonder whether it might not just be better to teach people that they only have this one life. There's going to be no religious afterlife. There's going to be no chance at being cryonically resurrected in some futuristic utopia. Like, you have this one life and you've got to make the most of it. And I think that gives things meaning. I think death being this insurpassable endpoint of your adventure on this earth, I think that gives things value and it makes things meaningful because everything that you do matters. And it matters because you are only here for this short period. And after that, you're not here anymore. That sounds good. And I get that it's that way for a lot of people, but there are also people out there, and we talked about this before, so it might be something that we repeat, but some people don't see life that way. They don't think everything that they do matters and they can't get pa they can't get past the fact that they are going to die, and that's kind of what makes them depressed. And that's what I was talking about before. And so... They want that extra time to kind of try to get to a place of like, of meaning and happiness. And they want to kind of get rid of this idea that they're going to die so that that's not constantly hanging over them. Because it is that way for some people. They think about death, then it's probably... It's probably <laughs> they think about death more than is healthy, I'm sure. And they want to kind of like get past that somehow and try to do things without constantly thinking about that. And so while it sounds nice what you're saying and, you know, in some respects maybe I wish it was like that, but who's going to teach us how to kind of come to terms with dying because we don't really know that much about death. And so... I would like to have the option yeah. of that kind of like sliver of hope or have just have a different option of this than than those other options that we have because they're so final. And they're so difficult to swallow. Yeah. And yeah, it comes back to what I said in terms of I really do feel like I have this this infinitely deep pity for anyone who is dying. And any kind of recourse, any kind of fantasy that they have that makes that easier for them, there's a certain part of me that just can't find any way to have a problem with that, can't find any way to find fault with that. Like, especially when it is someone who is like a loved one, someone that you care about on a deep personal level, it's like you would feel so helpless, so impotent, 
being around them as they're dying. Like all you want is to be able to spare them this horrible thing. But you can't. You can't die for someone else. Everyone has to die on their own, which is kind of a scary slash deep proposition to contemplate. But what you can do is allow them anything they need to make the process and the prospect of dying easier to endure. It's so overwhelmingly sad and heartbreaking when you know someone is dying. There is no pep talk on this fucking earth that you can give someone to make them feel better about the fact that they're dying. And this goes to like a 14-year-old or an 84-year-old. Like, just because they have lived a long life doesn't mean it's okay that they're going to die, you know? So I just feel like, like you said, if there's any kind of hope, any kind of just anything you can give someone to make them feel even just a tiny drop better or more kind of like fulfilled when they're going to die, then I don't know why you wouldn't give that to them. Yeah, I agree. I just find the idea of freezing yourself like everyone else does, I think. I just find it such a tantalizing fantasy. But I think maybe it's not all that it's cracked up to be, even if it was to work exactly as you'd want it to be. Because if you think about it, it's going to be at least a hundred, a few hundreds of years before scientists figure out a way to not only thaw you out of this um, biological stasis, but to cure whatever it was that was going to kill you and maybe to rejuvenate your body as a whole, that you're going to wake up in a completely different time all the things that gave your life meaning in a way the loved ones who were around you the culture that you took part in the things that you aspired to in your particular time those are all going to be trapped in the past and you are going to have awoken in a completely different epoch and i think in a way it's almost like you're waking up as someone else because all those kind of like seemingly unimportant external factors that you don't think have a crucial effect on making you who you are. Those are all going to be vanished. Those are all going to be long dead. They're going to be consigned to the wastebasket of history. And now you're going to awake in a completely different context. It's almost like, what's the point in a way? Like, is life so worthy of being coveted at any cost that you will accept the fact that you can never have the life you have now you have to embrace some kind of new and alien form of existence just to go on living well i feel like no one ever gets to that point no i feel like it would probably almost just be hard to think about that if you were dying but you had this tiny hope of being like frozen i feel like you don't really you probably wouldn't think much far past that because somewhere in your mind you know it's probably not real it's probably not going to happen but you have to hold on to this hope because in those last days you'll go mad or you feel like you'll go mad the idea is that you don't get to that point and so you just think oh i could be frozen you know like i'll have that hope and you just leave it at that. You let yourself cling to the hope without there being all these weird consequences of what might happen. Yeah. 
Well said. <laughs> I think that pretty much wraps it up. Yeah. It was a heavy one it today. Heavy one. It made me sad. Yeah. Yeah. This was like a catharsis. We had to talk through all these heavy emotional yeah. things so that we can come out the other side. Yep. So we, we've been there somewhere. We've learned some things. Yeah. It's been a learning experience. <sighs> Tiring. It's freezing, by the way. It's very cold in here. Yeah. You're snuggled up in the blanket on I the am. couch. I started out in like a very like seated position with just like regular, and now I'm like. You've slowly slid down into like this little cocoon, little podcast cocoon yeah. of of it's, warmth it's warm and comfort. Here. Yeah, it is very cold in here. Yeah. Wow, so that's another episode. Yeah, another one Yay. in the bag. I'm really. I'm really, um, really feeling this podcast thing. Yeah. yeah. You think you're going to stick at it? I think I'm going to stick at it. You know what? This podcast thing ain't so bad after yeah. all. <laughs> I finally understand what all these kids were talking about. <laughs> wow. I had I had a very strong moment during that, that we were recording a podcast and that someone out there was going to be listening to it. Yeah. I have that now and then, which I know seems kind of silly, but... That is a surreal realization especially seen as we've occasionally looked at the listener stats and when you see all the different countries that have tuned in that's insane it is very it is very strange it it, it doesn't seem real like i don't want to seem like the kind of typical dumb westerner who's like look at all these wacky countries like but it is like we are recording a podcast in our little apartment in some small english city and then you look on the stats page and it's like people from Pakistan have listened, people oh, from India, Vietnam. people from Ghana, from Sri Lanka. Like, Hi, by the way. Yeah. Hey, guys. <laughs> thanks like, for listening. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs> Hopefully we can give your country a, a shout out if we just go through enough yeah. of them. I forget which ones I've already said. So I'm just going to say Greece, France, Germany. Malaysia. Austria. Yeah. Remember there was the place in yeah. Malaysia that we very much enjoyed the name of what was it called clang it was called clang <laughs> it was clang malaysia clang. which is an awesome name for a Hi, city clang, malaysia. if you're listening to us in clang we'd like to extend our most sincere salutations yes hi clang I'm trying to think about Such other places name. taiwan taiwan is there anywhere else that i'm forgetting saudi arabia yeah i hope that we don't end up getting someone's hand chopped off for listening to our vulgar profane yeah. podcast <laughs> new zealand that's far <laughs> is that your your <laughs> helpful contribution new zealand yeah fucking hell pretty sure that's where the hobbits live no. do you think a hobbit could have been listening to our offensive. podcast i yeah, don't think I it's think offensive. maybe it was the hobbits. i think they enjoy the tourist revenue enough that you can poke fun at the yeah. fact that Everyone associates that country with the Lord of the Rings. I think maybe it was the Hobbits listening, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. With little MP3 oh. players made out of tree branches and... How? Worms. <laughs> Hobbits are resourceful, you know. <laughs> Hobbits is... You have to be creative if you're going to survive in this world as such little yeah. people. Cuties. Hobbits is... It is pretty crazy, though. Without sounding like, you know, a complete like, noob or like... Noob. Silly. Like, it is pretty crazy when you see it. It's like, like, 
how why yeah. like you know why i think that's the most <laughs> salient question it's like why are people tuning into this in yeah. a way it's like to us it's just like we're just sitting on the couch having a conversation but to other people it is always interesting to kind of dip into someone else's yeah, world dip into is. someone else's lives and to have that voyeuristic thrill of like i get to hear this otherwise candid conversation yeah it's pretty crazy yeah so yeah we uh we hope you enjoyed this episode please share it with anyone else you think may like it new episodes are released like maybe one and a half weeks to two weeks after the previous one has been released um, you can find the podcast on iTunes and pretty much all of the podcast services. Or you can go to artatpodcast.com. That's A-R-T-A-T podcast.com, which redirects to our SoundCloud page. And as always, if you have any feedback or comments, which we would greatly appreciate and welcome, you can send them to artatpodcast at gmail.com. And again, please rate, review and subscribe if you have time on iTunes because that really helps new podcasts and we would really, 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 really appreciate it. Yes, we would. And we would like you lots. You'd be doing us a great favour, yeah. Internet Stranger, if you could just take a few seconds to do that for us. Yeah. So yeah, here we are at the end. At the end of another podcast. <laughs> It's strange how when people finish listening to the episode, it's like we completely disappear from their consciousness, yeah. their lives. It's almost like we have gone back into the box and yet our lives just... Continue on. Yeah. Yeah, that is pretty crazy. It's like how we, we said before, it's almost like, is is this world real or we just like imagine it? And isn't it strange how there are millions and millions of people, billions of people lives that are happening at the same time as our lives yeah. but we can't see it and we don't know it it's very strange that's a discussion for another episode yeah. though i'm pretty sure that's one where you definitely want to prepare your mind to be blown <laughs> that was my explosion sound I... which probably wasn't very effective <laughs> yeah it's fascinating how we all kind of tend towards this nihilistic standpoint of like i'm the only one Everyone else around me might be just kind of a mindless, soulless automaton, but I'm the one. I'm the one who matters. I'm going through all these vivid experiences. <laughs> yes. Look at all these mindless zombies around me. They're all real. Yeah. They're all happening right now. Real lives and real situations and like love and children being born and good stuff. It's like you it's can't happening. keep it all in your mind at the same no, time. You can't. You can't really contemplate the reality of there being seven billion other versions of your consciousness out there coexisting on the surface of this one planet in this vast and seemingly dead universe when you said that i had like a mini mind shift of like whoa just complete boredom <laughs> seven billion people shut the fuck up ryan <laughs> is that what you were thinking yeah. You and your fucking faux There's... profound bullshit. Hey! I know how you think. This is taking a strange turn, people. Yeah. <laughs> you never know how the podcast is going to end. It just ends there with like a thud. <laughs> the sound of me, me malleting you yes. with a giant wooden mallet. Oh I feel like there's no funnier way to die than being beaten to death with a mallet. Sure, there But are. it has to be comedically oversized. 
So not a regular mullet then. No. That's a tragic demise. It has to be the thing that imbues it with funniness is that it's so hilariously big. <laughs> smash. Smash mash. Smash mash. Smash mash smash smash smash. We've gone mad. We've gone mad. I think that's probably a good time to end it, folks. Yeah. Farewell. Until next time. Avida Zane. Thanks again for listening to the podcast. The music used during the intro and outro was kindly provided by Christopher from soundslikeanearful.com. See you next episode.